This is Jocko Podcast number 152 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. These are men that would rather die than live with the shame that they didn't offer their last breath in service to the men to their left and to their right in battle. Each man was shaped through immense trials, personal fortitude, and dedication, giving all he had to offer. At times, when only the great pride of walking in the path least traveled was there to keep him company. Through constant discipline, drive, and sacrifice, they have risen to the top of their trade and embodied the ethos of the Marine Raider. A man who displays the very pinnacle of soldiery virtue and unwavering loyalty. A man who will never quit or surrender and who, uh, who will at all times stand ready to sacrifice whatever is needed to accomplish the mission. They stand as shining examples of what our nation entrusts its freedom and respect to. Nothing is more awe-inspiring than the look on a fellow operator's face as they are surrounded by death. The casual smile of confidence as they acknowledge that things will be what they'll be. And if this is the way we die, then let's do it right and honor our legacy. When surrounded on all sides, we faced what seemed the inevitability of death. Not a man before you skipped a beat in their commitment. All or nothing. Death or glory. And those are some excerpts from a speech by Marine Raider Gunnery Sergeant Brian C. Jacklin talking about a mission that he was on. And I think in that speech, he did a great job of explaining the type of man that makes up the Marine Raiders, which is the Marine Corps component of special operations. And tonight, we are lucky enough to be sitting with one of those men, a United States Marine, a special operations raider, and a true hero, Derek Herrera. Derek, welcome, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's awesome to have you on here, man. I, I know we got hooked up through some uh, old mutual friends. And I'm glad we did, and I'm glad to uh, sit down and be able to talk to you and, and hear a little bit about you and your life and everything that you've done. And as usual, let's start in, uh, let's start in Little Rock, Arkansas. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, <laughs> Which so. is where you were born, right? I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas. And what, 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 like, what was the family doing in Little Rock, Arkansas? My father was a pilot in the Air Force. Okay. And so he was stationed there. And I was born there in 1984. And and then how long were you guys moving around all the time? Typical military family? Yes, absolutely. So moved about every two or three years 
So I lived in Arkansas for about two years, moved to Illinois, I think, for a year or two, and then uh, Honduras uh, for an overseas assignment to Gusigalpa, Honduras okay. in the late 80s, which was pretty interesting. Do you speak Spanish then? No, <laughs> I, I did for a while. And... Uh, then try to replace it with Arabic and then Pashto. And yeah, yeah. I learned that that's not one of my gifts. <laughs> Let's just go with English and get a Terp. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so knew enough to be tactically conversant, you know. But um, but no. So lived there for a few years, and then uh, my dad moved to Dover, Delaware. Was stationed at Dover Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. He was a C-130 and C-5 pilot, and uh, continued to bounce around. But at that time, in elementary school, my parents had divorced, so my family still lives in Delaware today. Also, the opportunity to live in Colorado and a few other places. But at what at what age were you when you got sort of like the military bug in your head? It was always a family business. Mm-hmm. So my grandfathers were both in the Air Force for uh, twenty five years and twenty eight years, respectively. They were enlisted in the Air Force, um, and my father was in the Air Force for you know, twenty two years in active duty. How did you get, not get bit by the Air Force bug? <laughs> it was interesting. So going through high school. Uh, I'd always knew I'd wanted to serve in the military um, and started to get interested in uh, the surface academy uh, option as well. So when I lived in Colorado, actually, my dad was, I lived with my dad when he was stationed at the Air Force Academy. So oh, okay. we lived on the Air Force Academy when I was there for seventh and eighth grade and uh, just always was drawn to that line of work. Yeah. And uh, decided the to Air Force Academy is, that's a nice environment. I, it's I really mean, nice. it's a really nice environment. It's beautiful, beautiful. campus and yeah. yeah. And and your dad was working there, and that it seemed was that not? I mean, when you say you were thinking about the the military academies, were you thinking of the Air Force Academy as your primary, or no? Uh, so after that experience um, in ninth grade, I moved back and lived with my mom in high school in Delaware. And uh, my senior year uh, of high school, um, had been playing lacrosse up to that point, and and had the opportunity to go and play for Navy, uh, or try to walk on at least, and had a decent relationship with the coaches there. Um, and so I was applying to Navy and Air Force, and uh, also wanted to be a Navy SEAL, actually. Mm-hmm. And so um, at that time, I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. And so as soon as I got in and got accepted there, uh, stopped applying to other places and just decided to go there. Yeah, right on. It, so. When Did you visit the Naval Academy? Did you know what was going on at the Naval Academy? <laughs> I thought I did. The only reason I asked that is because, like, I mean, I know I was not the most squared away kid. I was kind of a rebellious kid. And even though I loved the military, I think if I would have gone to, and I went to West Point when I was a little kid, and that kind of got me fired up. Yeah. You know, I think my dad took me to some kind of game there. I mean, I was really young, like maybe seven or eight or something like that. But it was enough to make me go, yeah, you know, I kind of. But I think if I saw it when I was a little bit older, I don't know. I think I would have just said, like, I don't know if I can put up with all that right now. <laughs> yeah. It's, but, you, but you did. You were like, I'm, I'm bring it. You know, I, any 17-year-old young man uh, doesn't always have all the, the right motivations. Uh, and, you know, you, you have all the reasons why you go to a place like that. And what I found after I had gone there was that uh, those reasons change once you're there. And so I entered in 2002, mm-hmm. uh, shortly after September 11th. Uh, it wasn't solely out of patriotic duty and every you know and those sorts of things. It was because you know I had already gotten in. Uh, I'd wanted to play lacrosse there. Uh, I was in love with my high school sweetheart from mm-hmm. Delaware, who's now still my wife mm-hmm. of almost 13 years. Um, and so 
those were the reasons why I'd initially, you know, decided to go. Wait, there. How did that play? How did you have in your high school sweetheart? How did that play into want to go to the Naval Academy because you would be close by? Yeah, it was about an hour drive away. Got it. So she could come and yeah, see me on the weekend and that kind of <laughs> stuff. And uh, and so those were some of the initial reasons why I went there. In addition, to all the the patriotic reasons yeah. as well. But uh, what I found when I was there, and you're challenged and you're tested, is those smaller superficial motivators often fade away, right? Mm-hmm. And what you're left with is those reasons why I initially went here aren't going to continue to propel me through the rest of this trial, right? And so the motivation and the things that I learned from there at that point was uh, the seniors that uh, we had watched and, and were led by uh, who had just graduated were literally going forward and leading Marines and, and sailors yeah. in battle. And we literally watched that on television with you know the invasion of Iraq and, and the the uh, things going on in Afghanistan and uh, really bought into the entire leadership philosophy and and wanted to be a part of that and wanted to be that and follow that example. So those were the reasons why I tried to stay and continue to move forward and become a, a military officer. I always, well, lately I've been like apologizing to people because there's actually been a, a pretty decent number of people that have joined the military because of listening to you know all of us and the guys that I bring on here talk about their experiences and they just think that sounds pretty cool and I, I always say hey just don't be mad at me like the first two weeks that you're going through boot camp or whatever don't be mad at because it's just it's like not it's gonna be a shock to your system when you lose all that freedom that you've had and but I, I totally agree with you in the fact that like once you get through that initial shock and you realize that there's a long-term thing going on here and you want to be a part of it that's yeah that's 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 awesome and especially for you guys that came in after September 11th because that's a, that's a I don't know if people can appreciate that what the difference is between the pre September 11th and post September 11th I mean pre September 11th there was almost in fact my first deployment to Iraq my SEAL platoon had zero combat experience. Zero. Zero. So no one had any combat experience at all. The most things that anyone had done at that point was doing shipboardings in the Persian Gulf, which are, is not combat experience. It's just, a, it's just a, a fairly administrative operation. And now every single guy, every single guy in the SEAL teams has combat experience. Every single guy, well, I mean, barring maybe a few outliers, but basically every single guy, you know, the Marine Corps, look at the Marine Corps right now. I mean, it's been, it's been what, 17 years of fighting and the combat experience is just so incredible compared to prior to September 11th, which it was totally rare to have somebody at a SEAL team that was in the first Gulf War, that was in one of the three platoons that got to do something and, and what they did you know, God bless them. They were doing their duty, but it wasn't these big, long, sustained combat operations. Yeah, it's interesting, and I think that's something that you know I think about a lot today, especially when we talk about millennials and everything else, and they get a bad rap. But everybody knows what they're joining the military to do. Like, and some men and women run to the sound of the gun, yeah. right? And some don't. And so the people that continue to stay, and like there was no question of what what you were doing if you signed up to, to join the Marine Corps or the SEALs, right? Like. And then how did that selection process, you said you wanted to possibly go in the SEAL teams. How did that yeah. work out that you didn't go in the SEAL yeah. teams? And you, That's got to be a tough decision to make. Yeah. And uh, sometimes it's made for you, right? So uh, Naval Academy is a very, very humbling experience. Um, and so as I came out of high school, I was kind of a, a very talented young athlete and, you know, uh, was able to get in. Um, but I was also from a small town and, you know, 
didn't have the humility and, and ownership uh, <laughs> needed to be a part of the teams. And uh, that became readily apparent. You know, I was physically capable, but just wasn't mature enough, honestly, uh, and wasn't, you know, uh, didn't have that right mindset. So I was thoroughly humbled. And then as I was kind of, you know, coming to the realization of what I wanted to do with my life, what, what now, uh, you know, had a mentor of mine who I really respected, uh, who was a Marine major and said, you know, Derek, like, I can help you try to get in the Marine Corps if you're still willing to do that. And that's what you want to do. I think you'd make a great officer. And, um, you know, the Marine Corps that you see at the Naval Academy is not what is the reality, right, mm-hmm. of what the fleet does. Because I had a really bad taste for Marines there because all the Marines there were drill instructors. Yeah. And it was their job to yeah. mess with you. And uh, so I was like, man, Marines are dumb. I don't want to be like that. Um, but the more I got to know the reality of the, what it was like in the fleet and what, what real Marines were doing, I uh, decided to pursue it and, and absolutely loved it. It was the best thing for me. And did you get, so then you go from there to, from the academy, you go to the basic school? Correct, yeah. So we go to the basic school. We go for the six months of of the basic school and uh, with every Marine officer. So every Marine officer, yeah. ground, air, everybody yeah. goes through that same uh, process. And then during that time, there's another selection. Uh, and so, you know, literally rank every choice you have from, you know, tanks, supply, logistics, finance, add like one through 21. If you're a ground officer or if you're a pilot, obviously you have a flight contract, you don't have to do that, but you rank it and then they do a, a quality spread to yeah. determine what you get. And yeah. so in some cases, uh, pre 9-11, like you said, it was, it was really hard and competitive to become an infantry officer. Uh, and then when we were there, um, it was still pretty competitive until about halfway through the course, uh, or excuse me, like a month out from the end of the course because manpower came down and was like, we're standing up a new infantry regiment. So boom. Yeah. And so, uh, so I th- think I would have gotten infantry regardless, but, uh, either way got what I wanted. It was my first choice and that's exactly what I wanted to do and, and move forward. And, and then where'd you, that. where'd you go from, from there? Where'd you, so you stay in Quantico for a three month course called infantry officers course. Get some. And it's, Amazing. Yeah. One of the best uh, training experiences there are. And so you learn weapon systems, you learn, you know, every, all, all different kinds of basic small unit tactics, everything you need to be able to lead a rifle platoon um, in, you know, an infantry battalion. Yeah. I don't know if you, yeah, you said you listened to the, to the podcast with Jim Webb on it and like his, first of all, and so then you went to a battalion and then you started to work up. Yeah. And all that. Yeah. Jim Webb went from that school to Vietnam and they like brought him out in the field and dropped him off and said, there's your platoon over there. The guy you're replacing is no longer with us and you're going to go take over that battalion. And he walked up on the side of a hill and said, hey, how you doing? I'm Lieutenant Webb and here's what we're going to do. And yeah. and then that night they got in a big firefight and he called in, you know, combined arms and man, but that school must be must be an awesome school. It's pretty amazing, yeah. And and by the time we were there, we had really phenomenal leaders and instructors who were able to teach us because they were fresh off the battlefield in Iraq and uh, were able to teach us exactly what we were going to do. And so for me, I went into a long workup prior to deploying, but some of our guys were just like, "What happened to Jim Webb?" No you kidding. Know, they had maybe a month, or were meeting their platoon at their their final exercise as they're stepping off to to go to Iraq. And so that's no joke, right there. It was, yeah, it was pretty interesting. And so. Um, for me, you know, I, I ended up going to a new battalion that was standing up, 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, uh, The Walking Dead, and uh, had about a year, roughly, to work with my platoon and, and to train before we ended up deploying to Iraq. And that was just a standard ground pounder infantry platoon? 
Initially, yes. Yeah, and so we were a standard rifle platoon. And then about two months before deployment, based on the needs of the situation in Ramadi, where we were mm-hmm. deploying to, uh, the decision was made to actually break us down into smaller training teams and advisory teams. And so my platoon of you know roughly 40 Marines and sailors turned into two 12-man teams, uh, which I was in charge of one, and my platoon sergeant was in charge of another one. And so the reason they did that was because that was roughly the minimum size required to partner with effectively yeah. for these police stations. And so at that time, due to the, uh, the successes of people like yourself and, and the other people that had fought in Ramadi and turned the tide of the battle, uh, we were consolidating and, and basically you know, withdrawing a lot of the combat power. And so we took over for two different infantry battalions and another army unit with just one infantry battalion. So we had the entire AO, uh, area of operations for just one battalion. And so I had uh, initially one police station that I was partnered with, you know, as a, a young lieutenant in a 12-man team. We partnered with uh, an Iraqi colonel and over 800 Iraqi police. Um, Whereabouts were you? We're in, so we were in a small neighborhood just south of Camp Ramadi called Tamim. Okay, Tamim, yeah. And so all of Tamim, we were managing with the police there because the police had done such a good job and taken over uh that you know we were in the back seat yeah. almost totally just to give everyone a tooth this is 2008 right correct yeah, so yeah, the, 2008. the the major fighting kind of tapered off in in 07 i mean early 07 they were pretty it was pretty calm i know the guys that relieved us by the time they left it was very calm in ramadi um, you know, obviously there's still always going to be a threat, but like to when we were there, there was, there was a lot, there was really bad, big gnarly IEDs in Tamim when we were there. And it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was awful. Some of the, yeah. some of those Humvees would get hit and it would just be, you know, they'd lose three, four or five guys at a, at a shot. It was a, it was horrible, but you know, that's awesome. And that's, I always trying to explain to people that that in Ramadi we, we actually won and you, you know you're proof of that when you were over there and you guys were I'm sure doing out civil affairs and you know that type of thing is that basically what you were doing yeah we were you know just really just trying to turn it over uh, to the police there and so got to sit on you know the weekly shuros and the council meetings and <laughs> hang out and drink tea with the colonel um, and we try to try to do operations with them and everything yeah. but they locked the place down i mean literally by the time we were there they had you know triple strain concertina wire and checkpoints all around the entire city so they were controlling the flow of they prevented the flow of any you know enemy material or any fighters so that then they did such a good job that honestly um i don't think anybody shot at us the entire deployment we had a few different smaller ieds here and there we had one major incident with a vehicle borne ied that killed a lot of our iraqi policemen unfortunately Mm -hmm. um but None of our Americans were involved or had gotten gotten injured at that time, um, but they were very well trained uh, fighting force, and you know they did good work. How was it setting the expectations for your nineteen-year-old Marines that was that were you know on deployment with you that were expecting to go get some? Yeah, that was interesting. So <laughs> you gotta you gotta deal you know with the missions that you're you're given, right? right. And so. Um, the average 19-year-old Lance Corporal or 18-year-old Lance Corporal at that time, uh, you know, signed up to join to go fight. And yeah. That wasn't our mission, and so we were very cognizant of that. And over the year, the workup, we were 
well educated too. So we had direct comms with the teams we were turning over with over uh, classified email network and those sorts of things, and we're able to find out exactly what we'd be going into. And so mm-hmm. we were able to manage those expectations appropriately. Yeah. And because of that, we were we were successful. I think um, our teams performed well. You know, they're obviously frustrated at times. You know. Yeah. No, can, I can kind of. I, I would have guys it. ask me that. You know, guys. Once I was. Well, I was back, but I was still in. But guys would say, you know, how am I supposed to get guys fired up to do this mission when it's all we're going to be doing is drinking tea? And, you know, I'd say, listen, that's that's still your mission. And you have to do it to the best of your ability and get the Iraqi police trained up as, as best you can. And, like, you still have to just attack it with everything you've got, regardless of what that mission is. And, and that's, hey, man, that's that's what that's what the nation is calling on you to do is that right there and so go do it to the best of your ability and that's again you know that's why i asked you that question because believe me <laughs> you get these young kids man they don't want to have tea with anybody <laughs> no they just want to shoot their saw right? <laughs> yeah and uh we're pretty fortunate and, and, and we did do some interesting things as well so uh because we had access and placement within the neighborhood mm-hmm. um to me it was kind of a, a pretty tightly you know packed urban area mm-hmm. and a lot of people would come and go uh, and so at that time we had great intelligence networks that would able were able to help you know help us identify if somebody didn't belong and we were able to work with our our counterparts to to try to you know intervene before they were able to uh, cause any issues and so we mounted up for a few different uh, raids which you know kept uh, kept the guys motivated mm-hmm. and things but um, but it's kind of a, a good and bad thing right that yeah, there was no, no fight going on in mm-hmm. that regards. Um, good in the sense that you know, the guys are safe and g- came back and were able to have a successful deployment and still do something really meaningful for the country. But you know, not as as exciting as they would have wanted because that's you know what the eighteen year old signs up to join to go do. Yeah, you know, volunteers to do. Yeah, so. you, I don't think too many guys walk in that recruiter's office thinking about you know police actions or anything like that no, but yeah but that's but you have to set their expectations correctly and it sounds like you, you were able to do that now when you came home from that deployment you you deployed again but it was like even more it was even more on the humanitarian side so what yeah. was that like well tell us about that one that was tough too so before i had actually uh deployed again when i came back i had such a good experience and, and learned about marsoc at that time the marine special operations command that did selection uh, in between those two uh, deployments oh, okay. and was selected. And so uh, at that time, the, the criteria to get into MARSOC was you had to do two deployments. And so had to go back and train and then deploy again. So wait, so the is selection like BUDS for MARSOC? Is that what it is? Kind of. It's more, it's, we follow more of a Green Beret Army model. So it's modeled very, very similarly to uh, the Special Forces assessment selection process. Oh, so how long is the about, the training? It's about six weeks. Um, and so uh, you go there and you do, you know, the basic tasks associated with selection, including, you know, hiking a lot and land nav and psychological screening. So, so is it stuff. more of like a weeding out or are they actually training you for anything? Uh, yeah, there's no, I wouldn't say there's really much of training. It's a lot of critical thinking and problem solving and, and very similar to this fast as far as like, you know, here's problem set, ethical problem set, mm-hmm. physical problem set, teamwork, and you're continually being evaluated. Um, but that's just a basic evaluation to 
just get the shot at going to like you know going to our training course. And so then we have a seven month long. Okay, I got it. So this first thing that you go through is just selection to see if you're going to be able to go through the real course. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah, Buds doesn't do that. You just show up there, and yeah. that's what, that's one of the reasons the attrition rate's so high. Maybe if we had them pre, and actually, I, I, I take that back. Now they do have like a pre, mm-hmm. you go to like a pre Buds, and you get prepared for it and all that. But yeah. um, so you go to that selection and you get picked up. Mm-hmm. So you go through that thing and yeah. they pick you up. But then you haven't done two deployments. They go, no, you still got to go on deployment again. Yeah, yeah and that yeah, deployment so. ends up being a humanitarian deployment for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So we did what was called the Marine Expeditionary Unit. And so on the Marine Expeditionary Unit, there are Marines embarked aboard naval vessels. And so there's a battalion, uh, infantry battalion. Uh, yeah. which I did two, I did two uh, MU ARG deployments back in the day. So I was out there with all, all the boys getting after it. That's how I developed a bunch of, you know, I have a bunch of friends that were, in the Marine Corps in recon and force recon from that time from doing ARG deployments. So yeah, yeah. we we got our shipboard time, but we yeah. used to, SEALs don't go, don't really do that too much anymore, but. No, no, and yeah, and I think that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> it was tough, that was, that was pretty tough. You know, so talk about motivating your team to stay motivated through seven months of shaking hands and drinking tea in Iraq, and now it's, hey, stay ready and just train on a ship where, yeah. you know, you have no room. You don't have any real ability to train. The gym holds six people, and there's three treadmills, and you can't get on the flight deck for you know yeah. whatever two hours a day. What kind of ship were you on? So I was on uh, the LPD 19. Oh, it was a Mesa yeah. It was a nicer. It was newer ship, yeah. so it was nice, uh, and it was good because we were on the. It was a smaller ship, so we weren't on the major. You know, yeah. the, you the big on the deck flat top with the command deck, mm-hmm. and so. Um, so it was pretty good, and, and I had a great deployment because I was a company executive officer, and so I got to spend very little time on the ship, which was a lot of fun because I got to go and uh, plan all the training. And so uh, you know we were bouncing around doing different bilateral training missions with uh, Israel, Jordan, Oman, uh, trained in Kuwait, had some liberty time in Qatar, Bahrain, uh, all of the Get peaceful some. countries <laughs> of the Middle East. Yeah, and so it was... It was good. It was a really good experience, um, but you know, a lot of Marines hated it because they were stuck on the ship. They didn't have the luxury that I did to go yeah. and get off the ship and and train. And so, it was a it was interesting deployment. Yeah, those shipboard deployments are um, very interesting. They were like we would do the really dumb stuff. First of all, when when I was on shipboard deployments, there was no internet. There was nothing. So we we would just literally mail. yeah, and I mean we were just dumb, and so we would watch. We had you know. A, a big box full of videotapes. Do you know what those are? Yeah. Yes. Video cassettes. Because there was no whatever streaming Netflix. So we just had like, I don't know, we probably watched 20 movies 5,000 times each. So that era of movies I'm very familiar with. Okay. But, but yeah, and then it was like, you know, the big joke about SEALs is when you're on a ship is sleep, eat, and lift. That's what it stands for is sleep, eat, and lift because that's all there is to do. And but we would we would PT every day out on the flight deck or somewhere on the ship, and then we would try and set up where we'd go shoot skeet. We brought mm. pallets and pallets worth of skeet, so we'd go on the back the fantail of the ship and throw skeet and shoot nice. it, or we'd sit out there with grenade launchers and launch grenades at the sh- <laughs> the, tr- the trash. <laughs> so we tried to make it fun, you know, yeah. but still 
there's 24 hours in a day and there's not a lot to do on a ship. Yeah. So yeah, it's very <laughs> pretty boring. And um, yeah, and for all the listeners too, the that was the the reality pre 9/11 before there were all these deployments. Oh, and yeah. that was, you know, you were just so the the mission for the MU was just to to be prepared in a crisis this crisis response force essentially. And so for us we actually had the opportunity to do one real world uh, mission responding to the earthquake in Haiti, which was, like you said, uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. And so um, right off the bat, as we were getting underway, uh, that had happened a couple weeks before we were scheduled to deploy. So we got on and went down and were able to uh, get involved and help out. And so we just flew in with uh, the company Marines and our company was tasked with just helping provide and establish security for a forward staging base, a logistics area. Um, for some of the food and water that they were distributing. So how uh, bad was it down there? Pretty terrible. Uh, it was really, really bad. Um, we flew in on a helicopter uh, into the giant dirt field, which, you know, we were bouncing sea wire and, you know, setting up fire plane sketches and everything just to, to get, you know, everything squared away. But the level of poverty was pretty, pretty striking for, uh, for us. I mean, we had uh, Marines stand in post and stand in guard and everything. And, you know, you see four homeless kids between the age eight and 12 sleeping with, you know, everything they own and they're, they're sharing one blanket outside the wire, just mm-hmm. hanging out, you know. Uh, we see like a fist fight, a drag, knockout, drag down fist fight between two girls that are age, whatever, 12 and 14 over a piece of wood because firewood is like gold there because they just don't have wood. Mm-hmm. And so that was really really eye-opening experience for us and so what were you guys doing were you guys bringing water were you bringing medical care what were you doing so uh the un was administering all the food and water and so they basically dropped us off in uh typical marine corps fashion they said uh you know pack light you'll only be in there for 24 hours before we relieve you <laughs> and then uh as we're getting on the bird they're like okay it might be like 48 and uh by the time we land they're like we're not sure when you're getting out so um so we ended up staying for about nine days uh-huh. in you know, I had to beg, borrow, and steal things there. But our job was just to literally make sure that, you know, overnight they could drop off 60 shipping trailers, ISO containers of, of food and water, and that people weren't going to. Who distributed the food and water? It was primarily the UN force there. So I think at that time it was a lot of, uh, I think it was the primary Brazilian mm-hmm. force. And so they would come in in the mornings, load up, and go and distribute it. And I know that was different for a lot of other places, but for us that was. That was the mission that we had, and that was the, the kind of the way it worked. So just a very short, temporary stint, and then got back on the, the ships and steamed across the Atlantic, <laughs> and then and then hit all a bunch of exercises and whatnot, like you said, over in the Gulf. Yeah, yeah. So uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to do the exercise we had planned for Israel because we were in Haiti instead. So we went straight to, I think it was Jordan, uh, where we did a Infinite Moonlight. I think at that time, um, and we were able to do some basic patrolling with the Jordanian mm-hmm. soldiers. That was kind of cool, actually, because uh, not only is Jordan just an amazing country to be in, but um, those people that we were training with were some of the same units that were going to fight in Afghanistan. Okay, and so the Jordanians provided uh, a good contingent of, of forces to go go forward in Afghanistan. So that was that was fun um, getting to work with those guys and to train with those guys, and then. We trained with uh, Omani soldiers, and that was pretty interesting as well. Um, 
the thing we learned, which was really interesting, was uh, actual Omanis. There's not, they're a really small population. So they have, uh, the, at least the units that we were working with had some, some conscripts from uh, Pakistan, mm-hmm. essentially Baluchistan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the officers spoke Arabic and they were Omani, but the rest of the platoon was all Baluchi and mm. you know, spoke uh, Baluchi. Huh. Um, and so it was kind of interesting to see how that worked, but uh, yeah. very capable force, had a good time no working kidding. and fighting with those guys. And but so, yeah. Modern day conscripts. Yeah, and I mean, they all volunteered. I mean, they, they, I guess technically concert might not be the right word. They all volunteered to be there. And so we talked to Got another it. platoon sergeant. And he's like, hey, so it's like a way I've for them here to for make money and get a better life for themselves. Exactly. So he's like, hey, the deal is, is I've been here for 20 years. I love doing this job. I'm able to send money home back to my family. And if I make it to 30, they'll let me bring my family over here. Huh. So he hadn't seen his family in 20 years, but he's, you know, trying to better their lot in life by going forward to, you know, live and fight for another country. Yeah. Which. You can't can't fault him for that. Like that's yeah, type yeah. of guy you want to work with. All right, so you get home. You get home from that deployment, and now it's time to go to what's the what's the long course of Marsoc? What's that course called? It's called individual training course, and so it is uh, pretty similar to other special forces training mm-hmm. courses. So where is it? It's in North Carolina, okay. in Camp Lejeune, uh, and so we have a small uh, portion of the base there now where we've established the a pretty sizable compound and so i'd say probably 80 to 90 percent of the marine special operations command is is headquartered there and then they have a small west coast contingent out here at camp pendleton and so the entire schoolhouse is there um and that's where every operator goes through training and how long is that course it's about seven to eight months and what are you doing in that course so that is a course that encompasses all of the basic fundamentals required to join a team and to be an operator. So we do, uh, the first phase is uh, some physical training. Uh, you know, you do some basic fire support, some medical training. You do your SEER, uh, your full spectrum SEER training there. Uh, and then you move into some basic uh, SR and patrolling to so special reconnaissance and basic, you know, uh, reconnaissance skills. Are guys, um, this, so this isn't really a selection course then? I mean, it's, No, this is a training course. But, but like. But it's it, pretty. High stakes too, and uh, guys are quitting or oh, so guys too, quit. So. Yeah, yeah, plenty of guys quit. Really, so. it's not easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we kind of uh, it just it, the the way you know it just seems like if someone was a marine already and then they made it through that first course and now they show up at this course, it seems like that's that's a lot of hoops to jump through to get to there and then quit. That seems kind of a little bit crazy. Yeah. Yeah, well, but we had some great instructors, happens. and uh, they uh, they pushed us hard, right? They tried to break well, us. What are they doing? What is it like the same? Is it like the buds type stuff? Be cold, be wet, be tired, be miserable, yeah. no sleep. It's just to get some yeah. of that. Yeah, for the most part, and kind of kind of a mix of buds and SQT, probably yeah. mixed together. And Got so, um, one of the things that they were able to do with within Marsoc is to try to take lessons learned and, and best practices from all of the other services. And so, whether it was you know the Q course or buds or sqt or otc or anything else the instructors kind of looked at what was going on in other courses and looked at the requirement for marine raiders uh coming out the backside because um, some of those guys will graduate and we had guys deploy within a month or two later on hot fills out to go operate do, so do they do they put you through like another like crucible type scenario yeah so it kind of makes uh it's called raider spirit 
and oh that's that sounds real fun yeah <laughs> that's one of those things like we're gonna get you with a little bit of that raider spirit come get some yeah yeah and it's uh a varying length depending upon the class and the size and the performance but uh at that point you're trained in um your amphib package your basic small boat handling uh you're trained in you know basic reconnaissance and in those principles all your comms and everything else so uh it's basically a full fit full mission profile for, you know, including an amphibious insert, which for us was, I think, like January. Get some. Maybe. And so, uh, <laughs> and then same thing, you know, limited sleep, limited water, limited food type thing. So pretty, pretty in, uh, intense. Yeah. Exercise. Yeah. It just seems like a super, uh, the Marine Corps squared away. And it, that's, this whole thing sounds like a squared away way to do this. Because if you look at Bud's, you don't even have real guns, most of buds. You don't even have rifles. You're carrying, you're literally carrying a boat paddle. They kind of make that your weapon because you can't lose it and you can't put it down, all this stuff, but it's a boat paddle. <laughs> I mean, you're just, you're so, you're just so young and untrained. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you just have no skills. And so there's no, it's just, and they teach, you know, when you get to land warfare, you teach, you learn some basic diving, but the diving that you learn is just so, so just just easy like looking back on it, it's just the easiest possible things you could possibly do diving and the same thing with the land warfare pieces like they're telling you hey walk this far and they're, like they're telling you exactly where to go it's not even it's barely you do land nav but it's barely land nav and it's and it's good because you know it weeds out a lot of people but then you have to go through, like you said, SQT, which comes afterwards, and that's where you start learning, okay, this is real land nav, okay, this is real shooting, okay, this is you know actual room entries, and then you get to a SEAL team where you go through more training. But yeah. it seems like, it, it, that's why I was kinda, I guess I was kinda surprised that guys that had been through enough stuff already would get to that and still be like, oh, you know, I don't wanna do this. That seems crazy to me. Yeah, yeah, it's a gut check. I mean, um, and that's one of the things that uh, is interesting, you know, you, Buds does a good job of weeding people out up front, uh, and so you have a, a pretty high quality care. You know, as far as the intangibles, the, the ethical and character principles, um, and then for us, you know, it's uh, kind of I would say more on a sustained, mm. sustained beat down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I mean, we started. I think we started the course with like fifty or sixty guys, and thirteen of the original guys finished. You know? No and kidding. So, that's changed a lot since then. So we've grown up a lot since then, and and just like Buds has, right? Like, oh yeah, you know. I bet back in the day, those those new Marsoc instructors were like, no one's getting through my course. <laughs> yeah, and rightfully so. Um, but the cool thing about it now, I, I see both sides of the token. But uh, the cool thing about it now is that we want more guys. We need more guys. Yeah. We don't want to lower the standards. Yeah. So why don't we just be smarter about it, right? Like, if we do a better job of selecting guys or get more guys starting or whatever else, right? Like. If the, the output is a trained operator and we need need these guys, then was there any part of that out. training that you thought was hard? Yeah, a lot of it was hard. Was there anything yeah. that you were in jeopardy on? Where it was actually, like, yeah, so same thing, right? So, hum, yeah, Naval Academy was humbling. Being in the Marine Corps has been humbling, and uh, at that point, I was a pretty humble guy, um, and so I did really well throughout the majority of training, and uh, so in the last phase all feeling uh, good about yourself i was okay but i said you know so we, we were doing an, the unconventional warfare package very similar to 
uh, very similar to uh, what the Green Braves do mm-hmm. with their final exercise and infoing with the G Force and everything mm-hmm. else. And so was doing well, and then uh, had a bad meeting where somebody thought I came off a little bit arrogant with our G Force commander and everything. And so then they just kind of, you know, put the spotlight on me and you know put me put me on the bubble right because mm. like you fail anything and you're done. And yeah. so you know that was one of the scarier times, right? Because I had committed years of my life to be able to be doing this successfully and then in a moment you know if i can't figure out how to make this guy like me or this g force commander you know execute this mission with me like i'm on the bubble right and i think you know some of its instructors mess around yeah, just, but they're they're just testing you right like you yeah. know to see how are you gonna how do you deal it? with failure right because if you've been successful thus far in a, a good number of things uh let's push him beyond his limit let's break him and see what happens right and and i don't know if that was exactly the case i didn't see behind the curtain but I survived. I, f- I failed something called pool competency. Mm. And I failed pool competency, which is they put they put your dive rig on, which is an old school dive rig with a with an inhalation and an exhalation tube and it's this this old thing from like the 60s or 70s or something, aqualung. And uh, you have to do all this stuff that they tell you to do underwater and they're they're slapping you around and smashing you and ripping your mask off and ripping your regulator out and all this stuff and you have to stay calm and you have to go through all these procedures and when I went through it was a 30 minute evolution and uh, the first time I did it my instructor who ended up working for me in the future he was a well, he was a first class at the time but he became a warrant officer but he was a UDT Vietnam guy an awesome guy but he failed me and um, yeah and so I failed, and years later, I talked to him, and I was like, "Hey, do you remember putting me through pool?" And he said, "Yeah, I was just messing with you." And I'm like, "Bro, you almost ruined my life. What are you talking about? You're just messing." He goes, "No, I knew you'd do fine next time." But yeah. same thing, like it was a test of let's just see how this guy does. But what we did over the weekend, me and a couple buddies that were that had also failed, we went in the dip tank, which was just a square metal box that was filled with water. And we pool comped each other. This I don't even, I can't even believe we did this. It was probably the most unsafe thing I I did, <laughs> or one of the top unsafe things I did was we drowned each other and trashed each other getting ready. And we did it to each other over and over again until we were like, "There's no way we we're gonna fail." And so that's what we did. Like, there's four of us or something. We yeah. just spent the weekend in the. I don't even. I can't even believe they let us do that. They just gave us dive gear and said, "Oh, you're just gonna play with the dive gear? Cool." We're in the dip tank like <laughs> idiots. Different time, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but. It is humbling, and it's one of those things. You know, there's no worse feeling for me than that feeling of like, oh, if I fail this, this is this is like my whole life dream done and destroyed. So, yeah, they make they play those uh, they play those games with you, and I think they have to play those games with you because you're going to fail in other situations once you get to the to the teams. You know, you want you do want to see how people are going to deal with failure, and they would do things like that in buds where, you know. They would there would be seven people that cl- that would pass a swim, and everyone else is a failure. And they, you know, tell us they 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 line us all up, and make every single make a hundred guys sign a chit that we were loser failures on the swim. And if they fail, if we fail again, we're going to be dropped from training. I don't think that was actually true. I don't know, but it didn't. <laughs> looking back at the time, I believe at the time I was like, oh my god. Yeah. So they do a good job of that uh, psychological warfare on you in oh, yeah. in that training. Yeah. So yeah, that was actually before that too that, you know, another pretty intense phase. So we do the CQB initial CQB phase mm-hmm. uh prior to that too. And so that one was 
say anything that was pretty high stakes, pretty high, you know, high stress. Did you mess up? No, I, I was I was okay there. Yeah, I didn't have any issues. You didn't but throw any rounds? You didn't shoot any any hostages? Nah, I no. shot a hostage one time. Oh. Yeah, I shot a just in training, but yeah, obviously just in training. But this guy, they had a target set up. You know those those they look like watercolor painting targets. So they're different characters, and you could take little, you could take the person's hand, and you could paste over like a pistol or a cell phone or a badge or a whatever. Mm-hmm. So I come into this room and it's it's kind of dusk and this was this was back in the day so we didn't even use night vision. This is just like day, you know, we're just shooting with our eyesight, our regular eyesight. And I come in and there's a guy and I look at his hands and I see like a dark pipe pointed at me. And I drilled this dude, you know, two to the chest, one to the head, <laughs> get some. <laughs> and we Put get done with the run. And the instructor, he comes out and he's like, he's holding the target in his hands. And he's like, he's like, hey, Jocko, look at this. And I was like, check. And he goes, what do you see? And, uh, and what it was, was it was allegedly, it was a rolled up newspaper that he was pointing at the, at the, at you, you know, at me. And it looked like uh, the barrel of a gun. And I and I, I looked at the instructor. And I was like, "Hey, bro, if I come into a room and someone's doing that, they're gonna die." <laughs> I'm sorry, man. You can't do that because the guy looks all jacked. Yeah. He's this guy, this guy with the green shirt. I'm gonna find one of these and post it because I'm sure you can find him. It's the guy with the green shirt, super thick neck, and looks all hostile and aggressive. And he's pointing this pipe at me, and I drilled him, and I got in trouble. That was my, you know, I had to, whatever, I had to run a tire or something like that. Yeah, but um. That was when I was in the teams. That was, you know, hey, yeah, horrible. And you do, you know, even even though I was like, hey, I'll do that anyways. But inside, and you know, even though I was like, man, that, you know, you got to be better than that. And that was a, that was jacked up for me to do that. And so I had to check hands more carefully and be more patient in taking that shot to make sure what I'm looking at is what I'm looking at. So yeah, failure is a good teacher, and it's very humbling. And then. So do you guys have like a full-on graduation ceremony from that? Do you get yeah. a pin? Do you get that, that new Raider pin? They do now. Yeah, yeah, we didn't have one at the time. So we've, uh, we've grown up. We weren't called Raiders and we didn't have a pin. So we just got a little certificate and handshake and sent on our way. And then you went to where? Uh, and then I was uh, assigned to Camp Pendleton, California. So I moved out here with my wife and, and joined 1st Marine Raider Battalion. And, uh, and that was your first time being out at Pendleton? Correct, yeah. How do you like Pendleton? I love it. It's awesome. <laughs> I still live here. I uh, didn't make it far, even though my wife's family, all her family is still in Delaware. So yeah. we, uh, we love it here. Hope to never leave. It's, P- Pendleton is, is awesome training ground. I mean, really awesome training ground. Yes. Yeah, it's great. Great place to train. Uh, we did a lot of our training there and uh, typical places out in the desert, you know, like Fort Irwin and a couple other places. But yeah, it's, it's good. And it's massive. I had no idea how big it was, but just huge, huge and then how long was that work up for we had so i arrived in august and i was in the the three shop in the operations section uh, before i went to a team for about two months and then we deployed in may so about nine months um, that i was with the team they had done their uh the workup cycle i think was probably similar to you know what the SEAL teams had done, where it's, you know, you come back, you go back, and immediately guys are shotgunned out to schools, individual training, and then come back to collective training and, and then deploy. So I had gotten there right when everybody was trickling back in from a lot of the, the individual schools that they were going to. 
And then how big is the team that you take over? We had 20 total with attachments. And so each team is about 14, or not about exactly 14. Uh, so there's you know, a small headquarters element and then uh, two foreman elements, two uh, corpsmen, mm-hmm. uh, you know, medics. And, um, and then we plussed up with uh, our Intel assets and EOD and uh, got in country and got some dog handlers and some other stuff as well with our team. And then, and that when you say you got in country, this is this is you you deployed to Afghanistan. Yes. And now it's 2012. Correct. Yeah, 2012. So I'd gotten out of training in 2011, and then deployed in May of 2012. And then, what was that when you were going into that deployment? What was the atmosphere in Afghanistan at that time? The atmosphere was different, depending upon the region you were in. Very, very different. So. Uh, where we were going was highly kinetic. Uh, bad guys running around all over the place, just kill or be killed, and uh, focusing a lot on security and, and combat operations. Um, and so there were two mission sets that our, our teams would, uh, would perform. Uh, either they would be doing a program called Village Stability Operations, which is what we were doing, or they would be assigned to a uh, Commando Kandak battalion, uh, which is more like Afghanistan's version of, you know, Ranger Regiment or anything else. And so when we deployed, we deployed uh, with a company. So we had three Marine teams. One of our teams took over a commando mission, and then the other two were doing village stability operations. Um, and then as we uh, deployed, we took over a couple of SEAL units and uh, a Green Beret team as well that reported to our, our company headquarters as well. So specifically for our team where we went, we were in very, very primitive rural area in the middle of the Helmand province. Mm. Um, right in the green zone and uh, so the, the which the green zone means something different in Afghanistan than it did in Iraq green zone in Iraq was uh, an area in Baghdad actually that was that was controlled and safe and and all good to go for Americans and there was you know other people living there and whatnot it is a safe zone and the green zone in Afghanistan is not that no no so the green zone in Afghanistan literally is uh, due to vegetation. And so the green zone, Afghanistan is mostly arid or desert climate, and uh, there's very little uh, green areas or good farmland, essentially. And I think it was in the 60s, uh, I think it was uh, the USAID or another international development agency built another canal off of the Helmand River. And so in between those two waterways was good farmland because farmers there would, you know, cut out canals and everything else to grow crops. And so this was like one of the only green areas in the entire country. Um, and so that's what they, they mean in the Afghanistan version of the green zone. And since there's vegetation, there's also cover and concealment for fighters, for enemy yeah. fighters. Yeah. yeah, and so where we were, it was it was tough because guys would use those canals to sneak up and it was very undulating or hilly terrain. Um, I would consider, and when I talk, try to explain it to most people too, I consider it more, more similar to trench warfare than just desert open warfare where you can see other people. Um, people are very able to, especially with some of the, the urban structures there as well. Uh, some of the enemy fighters would be able to, to creep up and, and you know, try to get the drop on you and, and get close to your position. So, these vi- so you were doing VSO, the v- village stability operations, and what did that, what did kind of what was your standard VSO mission look like? What was that deal? 
So for the VSO mission, we had three lines of effort. So the first was to establish security. And the second was to try to revive economic development. And then the third was to link political governance. So the three lines of effort, security, development, and governance for political governance. Couldn't really focus on economic development or political governance if the villagers didn't have security. And so one of the first things that we did, and we took over a pretty capable force because people had been doing this mission a lot before us in this region, they would uh, train and equip a small police force called the Afghan local police. And so the idea was, was if you take people in these small communities that are from there, train them, pay them to provide security, that they would be more effective at providing security than any Americans would be, um, which is in most cases very true. And so we took over uh, this site and we had about, I think probably 100 or more Afghans that were on our payrolls to help go and provide security for the area. And so that was primarily uh, what we focused on um, because we were still trying to train them, get them to a place where they could provide so, security for themselves. So is this multiple, multiple villages in like an area that you're, that you're providing security for, that these Afghans are providing security, or is it like one big you know, like larger village. For us, it was just one village, and it wasn't even—I mean, it wasn't even that big, honestly. So we literally, uh, as far as uh, operational areas and things, I think ours was a few kilometers max. Oh, so no we kidding. were, yeah, because super focused. Where we were was um, essentially a minefield. We were right in the middle of this this contested region, prime poppy growing uh, area. So. Taliban wanted it, and the, the farmers would grow poppy, and that was their economic, you know, that was their, their payday, their paychecks. Um, and so, very complex problem to try to change. Uh, and so, we. So, did you, really did you close. live in the villages? Did you yeah. live there? Yeah. So, you took over some houses or whatever, and then you set up your, your base of operations, and you lived there? Essentially, yeah. We took, basically, we weren't able to really take over any houses because. Uh, all the houses that were unoccupied were all full of IEDs. So the TTP and basically what we had done at that time was uh, wherever we were going to set up, we would uh, bulldoze and just build structures on our own, you know, HESCO barriers. But it was very primitive. We had no no running water, just living in a dust bowl, essentially. Um, get some towers up for security, and then that was pretty much it. So. And there's how many of you out in this remote location? We ended up having two sites, and so we had mutually supporting positions within our team. And I think we had probably 60 Americans. So we had our 20 guys, and then we actually had a trailer platoon of Army infantry uh, guys out there as well. And so they would help provide security and stand post and, and allow us to go out and do missions. So now you get into doing missions, and what, what does that look like? You're going out, you, you, you have to take people, you have to move people, you have to go and meet people. Like what was the kind of standard um, when you when you say mission to execute from those little forward operating bases? What was kind of the standard mission that you would execute? Yeah, so the the missions varied, but for the most part, uh, and I was only there for about two months uh, before I'd gotten injured and came back. But um, the team we took over for had done a really good job, and they had some very challenging human. Uh, dynamics within the AO. Um, they were going attacked multiple times a day. So uh, when we got there, we tried to do whatever we could to, to proactively prevent that from happening. And so 
the standard practice that we would do is uh, we'd go out and set ambush patrols, uh, try to find guys who were coming to kill us and kill them before they got to us. So uh, to do that is not an insignificant task, especially when you're going through a minefield. Uh, and so the TTPs that we kind of used at that time was we would go into the cover of darkness, uh, which would allow us time to slowly and methodically get to wherever we wanted to go, uh, take over a compound or a building, um, and then just stay there all day and observe and see what happened. And then that next night, usually, exfil under the cover of darkness again. And the main, main reason we did that was because a lot of the IEDs that were out and uh, set up were in positions where um, there were just so many of them. And they were in positions that were advantageous and would be you know, observed by the enemy. And so if an entire compound had a, a few different IEDs in it and we started to realize that, hey, we, we can't go in these compounds or we can't go near them because if there's nobody in it, most of the time they have IEDs, the enemy would then wait until we were in a position and just fire a few shots at us, trying to drive us into those mm-hmm. positions and things. And so just in general, we just preferred to operate at night because uh, – they didn't have night vision capabilities. They weren't able to shoot at us at night, and, and we would be able to, to take our time and move uh, very slowly and methodically through the IED threat that we encountered. And so that's how we were able to try to mitigate that. Um, and that was, you know, how we would usually conduct those missions. And then there, how often would you actually get contact once you were out set up in an ambush position? I think almost almost 100% of the time. It felt like that, at least. Yeah. Um, and so we wouldn't go out every day, uh-huh. uh, so we'd stagger these. And obviously with the, the operational, you know, the number of people that we had, um, we're trying to maximize the bang for our buck and, and to be very efficient with that while also running other operations and trying to build the police force and other types of, you know, oper- lines of operation. Um, and so we'd go probably every few days. Uh, so this is a very aggressive VSO mission. Yeah. I mean, this is we, a lot uh, more aggressive than I was thinking the, the term uh that was thrown around by some of the guys was smash mouth <laughs> vso uh and so if you look at the the entire landscape of afghanistan from the highest levels of, of command and everything there were you know green yellow and red areas and if you looked at that based on enemy activity or friendliness to coalition forces the traditional model for vso was hey put them in yellow areas mm-hmm. that you know we're likely to be successful. Yeah, we can make some progress. Not in red areas, right, where people will just fight to the death and, you know, there's no chance of this happening. And so uh, different people have different thoughts of what's green, yellow, and red. And so uh, <laughs> we ended up there, and that was our mission, and we tried to make the most of it. So, But, yeah, very different. And so that, and we even had teams. Other Marines were out in the west in Herat province, uh, which was very different than the Helmand province. And so out in Herat province guys are you know walking around with just a pistol and driving on motorbikes and you know drinking tea and hanging out no helmets like you know Mm. not getting shot at very 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 different experience than than where we were um and that that was great because you know we're just glad different places of you know different portions of the country were were successful yeah with that mission set and and i think to a large degree most of the the special operations units that conducted that mission were very successful um and for us, you know, it's debatable how successful we were, but that was 
a very different environment. Yeah, I know there were guys that were going over to do it, and they would ask me about, you know, what do you think of this? We're going to do this village civility thing. And I was like, oh, you're going to go out in the middle of, you know, Indian country with your platoon. That's going to be an awesome mission. Like, it's going to be great. Go get some. Go do a, do a good job. I mean, that's just a, it's a cool mission. It's just yeah. to be out there on your own. I mean, how much oversight did you have out there? <laughs> Not much. I mean, I mean, and that was that was one of the coolest things was yeah. having the freedom to go and, and execute. And so, you know, whether or not it was you know destined for success based on what the situation was, we were going to do the best we could to to make it success. And we had a lot of resources to do that. Whether it was you know the intelligence assets that we had at our disposal, uh, you know, as a captain in the Marine Corps, had assets that were like more than a mu commander, right? Uh, <laughs> And same thing for CAS and, and air support. Um, ROE was a bit restrictive for conventional forces. And for us, you know, we were able to, as long as we met certain criteria and, and you know, able to justify it, we were able to drop CAS where we needed to, um, you know, which was very different. And so we did the best we could and, and made the most of it. And then you're a couple months into deployment and that's when you got, that's when you got wounded. Yeah, and what what happened on that op? Yeah, so we were starting to have some successes with the security bubble that we were establishing, and so uh, we pushed a little bit further from our base to try to see where we thought there would be enemy activity. And so we went about, I think maybe a click and a half on foot from our base, and found ourselves in Indian country essentially. So we occupied a compound uh, under cover of darkness and. Shortly after the sun rose, immediately started seeing heavy activity around us and started getting engaged from uh, multiple directions with with different weapon systems. And so uh, shortly after that happened, um, there were three Marines on the rooftop of the compound that we're in. Uh, We had the rest of the Marines down, surrounded, protected, protected by the rest of the compound walls. So most of the construction in Afghanistan is, is mud, mud huts. Um, and despite not having running water or electricity or anything, they were able to build these massive fortifications around each house. And so the walls would protect you, but you can't see anything. So you also don't have situational awareness on what's going on. And so as a commander, as a leader of the patrol, uh, swapped out with Brian Jacklin, uh, who was on the rooftop at that time, to try to get awareness. And so started observing different things going on and and you know as i was up there an enemy fighter had uh engaged us from our flank and so myself and another marine on the rooftop were shot uh third marine was able to roll off without getting shot and so immediately the bullet went into my shoulder and into my spine and so i just felt a pulsing sensation in my back and kind of slumped over saw ricky who was the sergeant to my left he had been shot through the neck and was face down on the rooftop uh try to triage myself, pick myself up, and realize that nothing below my chest was working. And so I immediately got on the radio, called my guys, told them that I'd been hit and that Ricky had been hit, and uh, they sprung into action. And so took the initiative to return fire, gain fire superiority, and triage us and, and continue to fight. And how long did that last? It was a long time. I mean, so, y- 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 you're uh, out there in the middle of nowhere and you're in a really hostile situation, how long did it take to get assets there? Assets were pretty timely, um, but it was also a very chaotic situation. So 
at that time, we had 10 Americans out on the mission. Uh, we had 10 of our Afghan partnered force with us. Uh, and so now we're down to eight Americans, two are critically wounded. Um, we had to pull guns off the line as well to treat us, so our medic immediately started treating Ricky and I. Another Marine started treating me as well, so that leaves six. Uh, Brian Jacqueline immediately got on the, the radio and started to, to try to uh, call in for medevac and air support. Um, at that same moment, Murphy's Law kicked in as well, and the SATCOM antenna came down. And so our SATCOM antenna came down, so we're now, Brian was relaying through our main position all the information that was going on, and so it uh, became pretty chaotic. Um, and it took about, I think, 30 minutes or so before the uh, medevac helicopters were able to come in and get us out. Man. And, um, and, and how bad, what was, the, what was the other guy's name that was hit? Ricky? Ricky, yeah. And Rick. so he got shot in the neck. Like, what, what was that all about? Yeah, I mean, uh, he, we all he thought he was dead, yeah. and um, turns out he was very, very, very lucky. So missed everything important in his neck, missed his windpipe, missed his spine. Uh, he was unconscious for a while, and we were both off the rooftop, and uh, our medic uh, started working on him, trying to bring him back to life while another Marine was trying to keep me stable. And so uh, put some click clot and different clotting agents in his neck, and all of a sudden, Rick kind of woke up and made like a zombie moan, and was like, uh, and was like blinking and stuff, and so turned out fine. And luckily today, he's you know he's left the service, but he just he's about to graduate from college. He's into bodybuilding, and you know he's doing great, which is awesome. And so at that time, he uh, was pretty stable, and uh, I started to take a little bit of a turn for the worse because the bullet that went in my shoulder had also kind of punctured one of my lungs, and so I started to have blood pooling in my uh the left side of my chest cavity and so uh guys were trying to get us out of there were you conscious i was yeah yeah for the most part until towards towards the end where i started to to fade a little bit and then did you did you eventually just did you pass out they hit you with morphine what they what they do i didn't get any drugs until i don't think i got any drugs until i got on the helicopter and then uh while i was on the helicopter passed out and woke up in a hospital in Afghanistan but I do remember the event and so I remember making the radio call to my teammates while I was on the rooftop I remember getting pulled down I remember talking to uh, Hafiz uh, one of the Marines who was working on me uh, talking him through a needle D uh, as he was giving me a needle D trying to tell him and talk to him and stuff and he said uh, you know he said some he said some interesting things while I was there too and uh, you know uh, so just to give a, people a little bit of a visual on that, a needle decompression is when you're when somebody's going to take a what like a 14 gauge needle or something like that and jam it in between your ribs into your lung cavity to allow some pressure out. And you had to talk him through that. <laughs> he knew what he was doing, but I was just you know That's just enough. trying to encourage him in different things. And so at that time, I was also trying to relay information to help them find the bad guys you know mm-hmm. find who they were trying to uh return fire for or against and so uh was talking them on trying to talk them on initially and then after that it was just trying to talk to him to make sure make you know and then the sure helicopters okay. sat down in your compound no they couldn't so that was a big challenge and so uh what happened and what 
Brian Jacklin was awarded the Navy Cross for, uh, and a lot of other guys who all risked their lives to save ours, did was they had to call in the helicopters out into an open field, uh, despite being under fire. And so they prepped the area with as much air support as they could, called in the bird, uh, and the bird landed. Uh, Brian blew a breach in the, the compound wall through smoke. And then literally what he said was, if you get hit on the way to the chopper, jump in, follow me, and led the way. And without hesitation, the other guys carried us out into the open. And I'm not a small guy. You know, I'm 200 pounds of, you know, barrel-chested freedom fighter, just like most of us with an, you know, a, lot of, a lot of kid on, too. And so uh, those guys carrying us out there, we're in a, a polis litter. And so to carry us, it takes four guys, and they can't return fire. You know, they, they can't pick up their weapon and engage the enemy. So they're totally exposed and without hesitation ran out there and doing the bullet dance, dodging bullets, trying to get us on the bird and get us out of there. And I'm alive today because of that. And so that for me, what I tell people when I talk about this is, is one of the best days of my life. And so, you know, it was one of the worst days of my life too, because I, you know, suffered this spinal cord injury and was paralyzed uh, from the chest down for however long that may be. But it was one of the best days of my life because a team that I was fortunate enough to lead, a team that I was fortunate enough to be a part of, displayed the highest levels of, of selflessness and sacrifice and courage on the battlefield. Uh, and just to witness that and to be a part of that, you know, is something I'll never forget and something I'll be proud of for the rest of my life. So, uh, Yeah, and if in case anyone missed it, the, the opening for this was actually, um, those are, those are, uh, Gunnery Sergeant Jacqueline's words that he that he gave during a speech and I thought they were just so uh, They were just awesome words. So I figured I'd share them with some people um, And obviously the rest of the guys, you know a bunch of kick-ass guys that like you said, I mean just incredible Heroism across the board from your from your team You now And and by the way and actually and Jacqueline mentioned this in his speech as well um there were some there were some seals like you said that I, I guess it was the guys that were under you the guys from seal team three that that came in and um i actually talked to one of those guys today because uh i knew you know because you were coming on and i just uh it was um i talked to him with dan crenshaw and and i i just told him you know i said hey i'm i'm, I'm talking to derek today and he's like oh that's awesome and it was just cool it was just cool that to, to hear the praise coming from Jacqueline and and that's exactly the same thing that that Dan Crenshaw said he's like yeah those guys were awesome I mean that's just that's just, he, he you know I said oh I go you were on that mission right and he goes he goes oh yeah he goes those guys were awesome that that's what he said and it was cool to hear Jacqueline saying the same thing and you know a lot of times people get uh, I guess people get caught up in um, whatever it is inter-service rivalry and I, I actually literally have zero of that i especially after my deployment to ramadi i have zero inter-service rivalry of any kind like if you're on the battlefield and you have an american flag on your uniform you are my brother and it was awesome to hear that feedback from both those guys um you you wake up in a hospital and you're yeah. in Af you're in a hospital in afghanistan yeah, I wake up in Camp Bastion. Uh, doctor's there, and uh, he's like, "Hey, Captain, uh, you got shot, and you may, you know, you're paralyzed, and you may never walk again." I just kind of stare at him and say, "Yeah, I know." We kind of had this awkward stare off, mm -hmm. and I'm like, "Hey, anybody tell my wife yet?" 
He's like, no. And he just kind of stares at me. I'm like, well, go get me a goddamn phone. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, got it. And so, uh, brings over the phone and I wake my wife up in the middle of the night. You know, so, so you knew immediately. Yeah. I knew, yeah, I knew that that was the case. Uh, literally the second I got shot, you know, cause I tried to pick myself up and it's hard to understand if you, you have never experienced it, but you know, if just your body is numb and nothing works, then, you know, you know, and so like totally knew that that was the mm-hmm. case and, uh, didn't know how long it would last, but I knew that that was what the issue was. And so, um, called my wife and woke her up, told her, you know, Hey, I've been shot paralyzed. I may never walk again. And I'm coming home. And so that was a pretty tough time and, you know, pretty phone, tough phone call to make, but, uh, through it all, we're just really happy that I was able to make that phone call, you know, cause a lot of guys don't get to do that. And so then moved on, um, got evac to Germany, spent a couple of days there. They didn't do anything, uh, for my condition, just kind of waited transport back to Bethesda, uh, where I checked in and, and, uh, met my wife and family and they started to do some other surgeries to remove the bullet from my spine and some other, uh, other things. And so our guys at that time too, were, they, uh, they stayed put in the compound and, and fought for the rest of the day, um, repelled a few different enemy assaults. And then, as you mentioned, the SEAL team, uh, that had come in to be the quick reactionary force for them, uh, came in at night and Jacqueline did the, the turnover with them. Um, they came in to kind of reinforce the area and do some, some battle damage assessment. Uh, and then that's when Dan had gotten injured. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so the, the guys had gotten out and, you know, the rest of our guys made it out that day without, without any further injuries. Uh, and so was in Bethesda and started my recovery process there with, with my wife by my side and moving forward. And that recovery process is, uh, I heard you say in one of your other uh, videos that you have out there, you're just talking about the new normal. Like, yeah. okay, this is the new normal. This is what it is, and I'm going forward. Yeah. Yeah, and um, the doctors were pretty noncommittal. So when I was there, they didn't say, you'll never walk again. They didn't say, you know, what you can or can't do. They said, you know, hey, you have a spinal cord injury it's very severe. It's very, you know, it's a big deal, but if you recover function, you know, the research shows that it might happen in the first two years, most likely. And so that was good, uh, in some ways and bad in other ways. It was good because it left me, uh, the opportunity to change, you know, to, to control my mindset and to say, Hey, like, so what, I'm going to get up in, in six weeks and go run a marathon or, or whatever. Um, the challenge with that though, was that was a little bit that was good for me to get through those initial stages, but it was also naive of me to not let the reality sink in. And so, you know, when that didn't happen in six weeks and I didn't walk and I wasn't gaining control or function of anything below my chest, uh, that's when it started to get real and like was really challenging for me to deal with uh, because I didn't, you know, it was out of my control, the level of, you know, the permanence of my injury. And then what, 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 was there anything that helped you get through that transition of when you all of a sudden six weeks goes by and, and you, you, the reality starts to hit you that made you say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Yeah. It was, it was bad for about, I think probably first four to six months. Um, and the reason why the reason why it was probably the lowest point, actually definitely the lowest point was, uh, 
August 10th of 2012, so about two months after I got injured. I had transferred to a VA facility in Tampa, Florida, because um, that was a major spinal cord injury clinic. And so the military DOD side doesn't have spinal cord injury recovery. They have it all in the VA. So uh, it was just me in the VA with my wife. We relocated there. And on that day, actually, that was the day that uh, three other Marines in our company from a different team were killed in an insider attack in Sangin. Uh, and so Captain Matthew Manuki and Gunnery Sergeant Ryan Jeske and Staff Sergeant Sky Moat uh, were all three guys that weren't in my team, but they were friends of mine that were killed and weren't coming home. And so it was hard to deal with that. It was hard because I was still in the hospital. I couldn't go to any of the funerals. And then it was continued to be hard after that because uh, it just reinforced the fact that my guys were out there vulnerable and I wasn't there to lead them. And that was my job and I felt like I was failing them every day, you know? And so although my wife was there with me throughout this recovery process, it was lonely, you know? Everything you do in the military is in teams. You're always from day one in boot camp, you have a buddy for everything. And now this was the first time in the military when I'm, I'm alone. And, uh, you know, without any control over the outcome of what would happen to my guys. And so that was tough. That was like definitely, definitely the toughest part of the recovery process. And so luckily, uh, I was able to fly back to California and see them touch down in December. All the guys made it back safe and sound, and then that was really when I was able to start to put the pieces back together and, and go forward and, and move on with my life. What did that look like, picking up the pieces and putting them back together? And, and the reason I'm asking this is just because, you know, I'm looking at where you're at right now, and if there's any buddy that could be listening that could say, okay, let me hear what he did so I can emulate that. Yeah. The uh, the key things there's there's a couple things that I did that I think are um, very similar to some of the stuff that you've you've talked about before and one is mission and purpose and so recovering in a hospital sitting there by yourself wasn't the mission that that I signed up for and so as soon as I possibly could I was back at work and so I was back in the ops section in January you know as a future operations officer trying to do powerpoints and slides and all the other stuff that. You know that officers are are tasked to do, uh, and it was great because nobody else wanted to do that that stuff. So I was happy to take it on and do it. Um, and so being around the team, providing something meaningful for them, and uh, having an impact was more important for my psyche than anything else. Um, other two things I've kind of looked at were like very stoic philosophy, stoic mindset, uh, and realizing that you know some things are out of my control. But I do have control over the way I choose to react to things, the way I choose to move forward with my life, and that I have opportunities, opportunities that guys like Matt, Ryan, and Sky don't have. And so for me to squander that, for me not to take advantage of every day and move forward in a way that they would be proud of is a complete waste. And so that makes it real easy to stop feeling sorry for yourself and to keep pushing and to keep doing whatever you want to do. And so those are the two things I think that every day, even to this day, continue to push me forward is like, you know, uh, setting out on the mission and the vision that I want to achieve and the purpose for my life and taking advantage of every day because, you know, it's an opportunity. I have something that, that every day I wake up, I can go and create or do or, or build or make something meaningful. And to not take advantage of that is, is to, to squander an opportunity that, that any one of those guys would love to have. So it makes it real simple and easy for me to do. Oh, man, brother. Um, 
yeah that's awesome man that's that's awesome that's an awesome attitude how long did you stay how long did you keep working in the Marine Corps for I stayed for about another two years after that so the Marine Corps is pretty cool they have some uh, programs in place for guys that are injured in the line of duty where you can stay in essentially as long as you want as long as you keep getting promoted and keep con- contributing and so for me I, I didn't pursue those longer term programs um, because I started to find some other opportunities that I was was as passionate about and wanted to pursue outside the military and so I continued to work for about two years as a staff officer um, working with first you know the operation section as we were transitioning and, and trying to assign new mission sets and, and supporting all those different types of operation uh, operational planning efforts and uh, I'd gone back to business school part-time to try to learn about business and and to go get more education um, and then I became really passionate about a new opportunity in, in medical technology and medical research and thought that that was where my next big impact would be and so decided to officially retire from the military in November of 2014 and have been out since then and what was the uh, what was the new opportunity and and where did that lead so the opportunity that arose was to start a company and try to address issues uh, and unmet needs associated with spinal cord injury. And so I learned firsthand how many challenges and how many issues there are in addition to just being in a wheelchair that a lot of people don't see. And so everything from bowels, bladder management, sexual function, physical you know, training, osteo- like bone density and muscle mass, there's so many different things that are challenges that are unmet. Uh, needs of the people like me and, and the patient population of which I'm a part of. And so the idea in the company that we started is called Spinal Singularity, and that's what we're working to solve. And so our first product, the first thing we're working on, which is in clinical studies now, is a, a smart catheter for bladder management. And so it allows people to push a button and empty their bladder, uh, which is currently you know, much more advanced and much more uh, useful and functional than the, the current method of management. And so that's what we've been working on for the past past few years. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's um as I was kind of reading about the stuff that you've been working on, and and even on that uh, item right there, it reminded me of when uh, when my buddy Jody Mitic came down to be on the podcast, and he's you know he's a double amputee, and but you know I would see pictures of him walking around, and he would do like he did some big race up in Canada. I forget what the race was called. The amazing, the race. amazing race, and he would do all this like r- really you know badass stuff that I would think hey you know it's it's all good and and um, when he came down here um, I think it might have been the second time he came down here it was the second time he came down here and we like hung out more because you know he came down for a little bit more time and we were a little bit tighter but um he well first of all I got him a hotel room and he called me and he said hey I'm not gonna stay at that hotel cuz they don't have uh, you know handicapped stuff there and I was like kind of I was like okay yeah man cool you know whatever but in my mind I was kind of thinking to myself like why why does he need that because I see him walking around and he's running the damn amazing race right and then so I asked him I was like well you know like later I didn't ask him on the phone I said yeah cool whatever you want and then later I I talked to him I was like why do you you know why do you need that I wasn't trying to be a, a jerk I was just honestly asking and he was like yeah well you know like at night I mean I I take my legs off and 
I got to crawl around and if I got to pull myself up on the toilet, I got to pull myself in the shower and like if there's not handles and stuff, uh, you know, it sucks. And so that was like part one of this story. Part two was we, he wanted to walk around San Diego and, you know, see where I lived and go to the ocean and all this kind of stuff. And so we did that and we had gone, um, to the midway aircraft carrier and walked around there and then we walked downtown and then we walked we were then we went to where I live and we were kind of like walking in the beach area and I could see he was kind of like slowing down I could see his face getting a little bit you know like like a little bit of uh, a little bit of strain in his face and he's like hey man let me sit down for a minute and then he he'd sit down and we'd talk a little bit and then he'd say okay let's go and then he'd say let, let's sit down and finally he said, hey man, can we just go back to your house? Like my legs are really hurting and you know, like, yeah, guess what? You're you're putting all that pressure on, on their stumps and and it wears away the skin and it's, it's you know, it's, it's hard and it sucks. And um, I guess, so that's part number two and what these two things reinforce to me is, you know what, like there's so much going on that we, that I don't see that that because you know I haven't been injured like that. There's so many things going on that I'll, like oh you know he's doing okay. It's like yeah he's doing okay. You're seeing him for like two hours, three hours. He's living like that 24 hours a day. And he's got all these things to contend with that haven't even remotely crossed my mind. And so when I when I saw the, the yeah I mean straight up the first time I ever it ever entered my mind how you take a piss it, how you would take a piss. The first time it ever entered my mind when I was researching what your medical devices are and I was like, you know, how how ignorant am I, you know, to be sitting here and never even thought of that. And then that's one of all these other problems that you have to contend with on a daily basis. And it's uh, you know, it's a daily it's a daily struggle, and, you know, something something Jim Webb brought up as well. Um, he he was talking about different types of courage. And he brought up something called daily courage. And he's talked about one of his friends that was wounded. And he's like, every day, it takes him 20 minutes to get out of bed. It takes him 15 minutes to get here and, you know, to the other side of his room. He's like, that's daily courage that he has to show. And I'm thinking to myself, yep. And, you know, it just makes me feel like there's so much, there's so much more that, you know, you go through on a daily basis that, we and me, I completely take for granted, I completely take it for granted. And so for me to sit here and talk to you and, and realize, you know, how hard it is for you on a daily basis, the things you have to go through, and then to hear you say like, yeah, but I'm glad I'm here, unlike my brothers who didn't come home. Yeah, I don't think anyone has any excuses, really, none. So, um, yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. And, uh, just makes you be that much more uh, creative with your mindset, right? Like you look at all the challenges, but you gotta also look at the opportunities, right? So I can sprint through airports much faster than you can without <laughs> gaining the stress. I got good parking most of the time, you know? Uh, so you just gotta make up time where you can, right? It takes me a little bit longer to get off the airplane, but I'll kill you on the straightaways right? <laughs> any day. And so, uh, you know, you just gotta take, take the go to bed. Yeah. So, but you know, it's it's don't so, have a choice. So, so that was like, the um, that was the you you, you got your MBA mm-hmm. at, at as is that while you were still in you went and got your MBA or did you get no, out? No, I I I got out about halfway through. So I did the 
part-time program at UCLA. It's an executive MBA, so it's Got on the it. weekends, mm -hmm. every other weekend. And so as I was leaving the military, so I did the first year, I was still full on active duty and then retired shortly into the second year. Uh, took another job at another medical device startup to get some experience. And then as soon as I graduated, started full-time uh, working on Spinal Singularity in my company. And so um, one of the experiences too that was really cool that uh, I had as part of that retirement, as I think about it now, was uh, being able to use and be involved in as a user exoskeleton technology. And so there's robotic exoskeleton technology that allows paraplegics to stand and walk. Mm -hmm. And so um, because of a lot of generous donors and the Marine Raider Foundation, uh, I was able to be to use that device and to, to obtain that device um, even before FDA approval. And so I had a really, really uh, great setup within our, our battalion headquarters in our office. And so we had a physical therapist downstairs. My office was upstairs. It was fully accessible, which is not like most buildings in the military. Um, and so I was able to use this device to stand and walk and, and to do therapy. And uh, when I retired, I was able to use that device and not use my wheelchair at all and to mm -hmm. leave on my own two feet, which was a goal that I'd set for myself. And so that was great, um, but it still didn't address a lot of these other unmet needs mm -hmm. that we had for the community. And so that was what inspired me to try to move forward on my own path and start my own company and build this product to, to solve these issues. So, um, so yeah, so very thankful for, for all the donors and the, the, the foundation to help support that. Um, and I was also very fortunate. So like you said, uh, a lot of other people had um, gone before me. And so one of my classmates at the Naval Academy, uh, a guy named Matt Lampert, uh, got to 1st Marine Raider Battalion about two years before I did because he was on the, the quick cycle of deployments. And in 2010, he was a bilateral amputee above the knee um, as I was going through the training pipeline. And so I went up and saw him in, in uh, Bethesda in the hospital and just checked in with him real briefly as, uh, as he was coming back and um, starting his rehab. And, you know, this is maybe a week after he'd gotten off the battlefield or less. And he says, you know, like, so what are you going to do? And he's like, I'm going to go back. I'm like, go back to California? He's like, no, I'm going back to Afghanistan. I'm like, okay, gotcha. And I'm thinking, like, man, what the hell is he going to do? do that? And uh, sure enough, as I graduated from training, he was my company executive officer who checked me in. And then we deployed again. So when I had gotten injured and deployed, he was there as their company XO. Um, and then after my friend Matt had gotten killed, he went down and took over his team as a bilateral amputee above the knees. And so, you know, he had come back. He had done that. He had trodden that path. And so for me, you know, going back and recovering, uh, our building was accessible. You know, it was wheelchair accessible. There was a lot of other things. And then just that example that he said as well was uh, was really helpful and inspiring for me to follow. And so, um, so yeah, so really, really fortunate in the, the rehab environment, especially because of all the assets that SOCOM has. And so if I had been in the grunts, been a totally, totally different story for how the recovery would have gone. Um, you know, my entire command was super supportive of, of me coming back and working and, and doing this and whatever you need, whatever you want, you want to go to ops, like, sure, let's do it. Giddy up. And so, um, yeah, so it was, it's a good place to recover. When you hear about, like, when you say broadly, like if I was a grunt, I would have gotten that kind of support. I mean, I get that because, you know, in the SEAL teams, we have the same thing. Like, like people will rally around and make stuff happen. Um, is there any th organizations that you know of that sort of support like the the frontline soldier marine that gets that gets uh, catastrophically wounded? Yeah, 
Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of different nonprofits out there. Semper Fi Fund is a big one. Um, there's a lot of different groups that support them, and 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 it's different. It's not that they don't have the assets. Um, it's just the location of those assets. And so, an infantry battalion has a very different operational mission and leeway than a special operations battalion. Um, and so, for all of the guys that were injured in the conventional forces, when they come back, they're immediately sent to Wounded Warrior Battalion at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And so their job is now show up to your appointments and do your rehab until you get separated from the military. Yep. Um, that's a very different way to recover with Got a bunch it. of other people who are injured or on their way out yeah. or whatever else versus, you know, and, and without an operational purpose, then what I was able to do, and I was very fortunate to do, where I went back to an operational Got role within yeah. the battalion, and I was the only injured, or one of the only injured guys, you know, recovering around normal people because I wanted to be like that yeah i don't know if you uh ever heard of a guy named jake schick but he was on here and he he told his story and that's like that's what it was he was there he was just like his job was just to kind of recover but you could see and in talking to him he he would have loved to have had some kind of a a higher purpose than just that which eventually he made he made it for himself he made his own organization to you know help wounded vets and and uh help suicide prevention with 22 kill um but yeah so i think that would have that's a that's a good comparison you know just from hearing him tell his story about you know what his recovery was like and it was it was geared towards okay you're going to do this until you get out of the marine corps I guarantee, you know, you talk to Jake Schick for three minutes and you're going to realize if if you could have told him, hey, we want you to do this for the Marine Corps, he would have been all over it. He would have gone and done anything, you know, because he's a badass. Uh, but but yeah, no, that's a uh, that's a good point. And that's uh, you, well, you've you heard me say it because you kind of uh, reference it a little bit. You know, I always tell guys they need to find a new mission. Whatever that new mission is, you've got to find a new mission. You can't be sitting around with no mission, man. You've had a mission for, for, for whatever eight years, seven years, twenty years, however long it's been. You had a, you had a mission, you had a goal, and w- if that goes away, you, you got to find a new one. And it doesn't really matter what it is. I mean, pick something good, right? I mean, your mission shouldn't be shouldn't involve whiskey, <laughs> but pick something positive and something good to move in the right direction. How how is uh, Spinal Singularity doing right now? Like, what's the what's the status? We're doing really well. So uh, it's been a good three years. Um, I learned a ton, and just the fact that we're still in business today is is pretty amazing because <laughs> uh, I had zero experience. Right, I had no clue what I was doing. Because I had no experience in the medical device industry, uh-huh. I had no network, um, and so the first year was a lot of, a lot of faith, a lot of ups and downs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just like starting any business, but especially in the medical device industry, uh, I learned a ton, and then was fortunate enough to find people to bring in that that are experienced and that I trust, and so um, we've raised money from investors, we've raised uh, you know money from grants and non-dilutive sources. Um, and where we're at now, we have a small team of, of six employees in, in San Clemente, and uh, we're running a large clinical study across the U.S. right now. And so we have sites all over, everywhere from Minnesota, New Jersey, to you know, uh, all over, Southern California and Arizona. And we're, those sites are actively enrolling people interested in, in supporting our trial. And, and then so, how long does that trial need to last before it gets approval? Uh, so the goal is to have approval um, internationally next year, and then hopefully by the end of the year, uh, we can have FDA approval for the product as well. Um, we aren't 100% certain that that's happening, but that's uh, that's the goal, and hopefully we can collect the data we need as quickly as possible to, to accomplish that. 
And then do you have your next device in mind after this one goes live? Got ideas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but uh, I'm always, I've always been like a versatile guy, not like the, you know, execution, like the 100%, I'm the zero to 90% guy, not the 90 <laughs> to 100% Somebody else gotta bring it home. guy. <laughs> and so I know that, so everybody else that we were, you know, everybody else in our team now are like the 90 to 100% guys. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I'm trying to be more like them and not even think about it because if if this doesn't work, then, got it. You know, there is no business, right? Like, we've put all of our, you know, this is what we raised money to do. You know, we haven't, we don't, we can't knowingly devote a minute of time to anything else until this is successful. So you'll get and then the, with that, then we can kind of go back to the drawing board. Thanks, things, but and once it's approved here, then it just then it's just selling it, selling it, and getting it out there, and it's going into the yeah into the world. And then what about the uh, what about the Marine Raider Foundation, which is another thing you're involved with? Yeah. So um, after I was injured, I was very ignorant to the realities of the way things work and what the needs would be uh, for me. And so um, a lot of nonprofits out there do all kinds of great work and different things as a Marine Raider uh, in this situation without knowing anything. You know, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was very hesitant to reach out for help to anybody. Um, and so as these things arose, you know, one of the guys who is, or was, is an employee of the organization now, and so was a currently an active duty raider at that time was like, Hey man, like we're starting this nonprofit to help guys. Like if you need anything, just say, say so. And so I was like, all right, cool. Um, and so they helped pay for my wife to move out to Tampa so she could be there for my recovery, helped, uh, you know, get her car out there so she could drive around and help transport me around to different things. Um, they helped us raise money for the exoskeleton because it was still not covered by insurance or the VA. It was still experimental at that time um, and helped do all of these things. And so, you know, my wife and I are eternally grateful for all the support we received from them. And so as soon as I got out of the military, uh, that organization said, hey, do you want to be a board member? Do you want to help? And I was like, yes, absolutely. And so that was 2014. And so I've been on the board since then. And I think it was 2015, I took over as the board president. And so I've been trying to devote my spare time to help that organization. But the missions that we serve and and ultimately uh, what we do at the foundation is just to support unmet needs um, of the community and their families. And so the government's really good at supporting injured veterans and and they have so many different programs that that help people, but uh, every situation is unique. Mm -hmm. And so, um, Congress isn't going to change a law to appropriate money for you to not do something that doesn't fall into the, the mm-hmm. black and white letter of the law. And that's fine. Um, but that's where we step in and are able to help things, help people and, uh, you know, take the stress off of them in their times of need. So have four real major areas. One is support to the, the Marine Raiders. Uh, another is family resiliency. Third one is tragedy assistance and survivor support. And then the last one is uh, Raider legacy and preservation. And so, um, Obviously, the Raider support and the family support are pretty broad uh, ways to work, and they can be anything from, you know, just anything under the sun that, that will help Marines and their families. Um, tragedy assistance survivor support, even though, uh, you know, we're engaged in varying levels of combat, there's still guys out there putting their lives on the line every day, and that's evidenced by a uh, recent training incident that we had about two years ago, uh, less than two years ago, in 2017, uh, there was... A C-130 crash that claimed the lives of seven uh, Marine Raiders, um, and then two years before that, a helicopter crash 
in uh, another training mission out off the coast of Florida. Mm-hmm. That took another lives another seven guys, and so um, being able to support their their uh, families and family members that had had survived those incidents is, is a, a big part of the mission that we we fulfill. And then Raider Legacy and Preservation. Uh, just can I say one thing? You you hit on this a little bit, but I'm just going to expand a little bit so people can kind of understand when you talked about like Congress isn't going to change a law to give a family that what they need at a certain time because it's too specific or whatever. And the reality is, let, let's say a kid, you know, needs a new bicycle and there's, there's, you know, the dad can't go and get it because he's wounded, he's in the hospital. Like, that's the kind of things that the foundation can do, go out, buy the bike, get it built and deliver. You know, like little things like that that really matter. Um, and it can be bigger things too, like you said, like moving a family, helping to pay for the movement of a family, helping to redeck, you know, get furniture for the new apartment, whatever it is. There's no law that takes care of those situations, but these types of organizations do that. And it, and it does have a big deal. Uh, it has a huge impact for those, for those families that are there. And believe me, when those families are in those tough situations, these little things to be able to not have them think about it, not have them think about, hey, the, the, the cost of a flight to fly, you know, dad out to come and visit his son or whatever. Any, any of those little things, they don't seem like a big deal, but they're a huge deal when families are going through these traumatic times. Yeah. So. Yeah. Another example, uh, when my friend Matt was killed and his family went to go pick him up at Dover, uh, one of the last, you know, things that, his mother wanted was her whole family to fly home with him and the government would only pay for the father and mother. I think it was. And so, uh, the other two brothers and some other family friends, they wanted to all be on the same plane. That was one thing that she wanted, you know, and she didn't want anything else. She said, Hey, I want us all to be on the same plane going home while we're, we're grieving with my son. Yeah. No, that's, that's, and so instead of having to deal with that and the insanity of it, you know, just tell her, Hey, yeah, we, we got, got your flight it. for you. Like get on the plane. You're good. Perfect you know, example. Such a small, seemingly small gesture, but with a timely injection of support can have a really lifelong impact on, on people. And so um, those are some of the, the different experiences. And I can go on and on about different ways that we've been able to help people. But bottom line is, is guys are going out doing these different things and, and for them to be able to go forward and, and to, to fight with a happy heart. Uh, they want to know their families are taken care of on the backside and the community will support them. And so that's, that's literally it is we just, you know, we're 5-1-C-3 that raises money to support the community members in their time of need. And then the last one is legacy. Yeah, so. Which is legit because you guys, I mean, you guys kind of are saving the legacy of the original World War II Raiders, right? Yes, we're trying to. And so. Um, Can we, you explain how that, how you guys adopted the name because it's yeah. it's it's awesome. It's a good history. So, uh, so the Marine Raiders, the World War II Marine Raiders, were one of the first special operations units formed. Uh, period, and so they were formed in World War II, and their mission was to conduct enemy uh, deep reconnaissance, essentially, um, prior to invasions in the Pacific. And so these guys would mount up in rubber boats. They were the first ones to do submarine lockouts, and uh, you know, and some of the things that they did were just insane even by today's standards um and so these guys were very well trained uh and basically provided the lineage of of who we who we are today um and so those that group and then uh other members also joined the oss 
at that time, which was the precursor to the CIA. Uh, there was a lot of Marines at that, that unit as well. And those are the two kind of uh, units that we draw our lineage from as, as the Marine Special Operations Units today. And so these guys were disbanded in, I think, 1946 after they came back, or maybe it was even 1945 after the war. Um, and so uh, we've been very active in connecting with these guys. They have an association uh, that actually Colonel Kaczynski is is in charge of now. He's the president of the Marine Raider Association, awesome. uh, which is a social organization, not not a non no not a, not a five one c three. And so, a lot of these guys are still alive today. Uh, World War II veterans, um, and so we get to go and meet with them and talk with them and hear these stories of these amazing missions they did and and conducting you know uh, month long en- patrols behind enemy lines, um, you know sabotaging the Japanese and and different uh different battles um and so these guys were very very vocal and outspoken to different leadership within the marine corps as they're all you know in their 90s and passing away they said hey one way to honor our legacy is to to have a marine raider you know have a marine raider unit today and that went over terribly with any leadership because if you don't know there's there's a pretty strong culture and brainwashing done within the Marine Corps and it's from day one there's only one title that matters it's that you're a Marine yeah. it's one or a zero you're a Marine you are elite no one is special no. or everyone yep. everyone is special and yep. no one is special yep. you know you're all replaceable but you're all special um, which is the weirdest conundrum but all of us believe it and at the highest levels <laughs> a title of any unit you know that thinks you're special you know is against the entire culture and so, since formation, since the Marine Special Operations Command was officially formed in 2006 from uh, the Force Reconnaissance Units, mm-hmm. overnight they became the Marine Special Operations Command, so literally changed the guide on uh, at a ceremony, and then they're officially SOCOM assets. Um, there was this undercurrent, this push from the lowest levels uh, and guys were really strongly pushing this, and so the Raider symbol, the Raider logo from World War II, is a you know a shield with the Southern Cross and a skull and a dagger in it. Um, and so, or excuse me, the dagger's not there. We have the dagger for some of our units now, just the skull and the Southern Cross. Um, and so, guys would wear patches, and patches are another thing that the Marine Corps. <laughs> patches, oh, I know, beards, <laughs> anything that is not in strict adherence with the uniform policy yep. is not tolerated yeah and so you know that's a quick way to get get hammered right it's just like you're not special what do you think you're doing this isn't authorized all that kind of stuff whereas the army's like you know the yeah, army goes well, out hey bro get, i'm in the seagull teams man <laughs> you get more points for flair right <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so you guys aren't as bad right? oh just, so embarrassing expected to have like to look cool right um but within the marine corps it, it was this consistent undercurrent pushing and pushing and pushing into those patches and then it became Tattoos, so guys would get the Raider emblem just tattooed on their chest, and then not wear a skivvy shirt. So you just would see, so like you know, you're going into your first sergeant, and they're like, "Where's your skivvy shirt, Devil Dog?" It's like, What skivvy shirt? I don't need a skivvy shirt. Um, and so it wasn't official until I think it was about two years ago, a year and a half ago, after a decade of insurgency That's from. Awesome the units that uh, that we have a name, and I think it's directly attributed to uh, Alvin Rick Raven, actually. So within SOCOM, um, he's a really smart guy, a phenomenal commander, obviously. Yeah. And uh, 
he gets marketing and branding and just the basic, you know, title, right? Like you've earned the title of Marine and within the special operations community, yeah. you earned the title of SEAL and Green Beret. <laughs> and so he said, hey, my one of my last things I want to do, like I want to work with the commandant of the Marine Corps. I want you guys to get a title. Yeah. And yeah, and it's, 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 it's not even about marketing and branding. It's about heritage and unit pride. I mean, what, what, what more awesome thing than to take and keep alive that tradition from World War Two of those guys and the service and the sacrifice that they had. It's, it's badass, man. It's awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and as part of that too, you know, there's just like everything growing up, right? Like we're growing up as an organization, mm-hmm. so we're new to SOCOM, so we're we're trying to figure out as quickly as we can. Uh, so we'd have our you know military special occupational specialty code. So that mm-hmm. took a while till we had. So all can that guys stuff stay in the Raiders out. now for their whole career? Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, because initially when they started, it wasn't the case, right? Yep. It was like, well, we'll let SOCOM use you guys, but then we want to use you too. So yeah. every five years, you're coming back to the fleet and you're going to be in an infantry company or a rifle platoon and stuff. And they were like, guys, that's When, that's when I first works. joined the Navy, I've talked about this before. When I first joined the Navy, the Marines didn't have names on their uniforms because they didn't need them because your name was Lance Corporal and your name was Staff Sergeant and that's it. It was legit. I always had a lot of respect for that. But of course now they have them. But uh, yeah. I always thought that. But that, that shows you there's like a slow, you know, there's a slow change in the Marine Corps. I'm sure some people would say that it's not good, but uh, yeah, it just is. It's just the Marine Corps. Big green weenie. Yeah. <laughs> Here it comes again. Yeah, awesome. it's, uh, it's good. And so so we have an MOS. Guys can stick around. We have uh, a name. We have a badge now. We have a, like a, you know, it's like you guys have the trident. We have a, a war eagle. I yeah. think some of the guys are it. <laughs> which is like it, yeah, a big yeah. eagle and a giant sword. And uh, so. Well, the cool thing, yeah. that the, cool, the cool thing about the Marine Raiders and about the Marine Special Operations is if you're in the Navy and you're in the SEAL teams, like you have nothing, there's no cross, there's almost no crossover. There's almost no, there's one, there's 3% crossover from the US Navy to a SEAL team in terms of your skills, right? You're a guy driving a ship or working a big 16 inch gun or working on a missile technology, that's what you do in the Navy. The SEAL teams, you're in a field with a machine gun. There's zero crossover and that's horrible. And in the Marine Corps, it's like, oh, you're an infantryman that totally, I mean, every skill is applicable. And that is such an advantage to the Marine Corps. And it's such an advantage to the Raiders because you get guys that have fundamental infantry skills when they roll in. We have to teach guys infantry skills once we've taught them sort of fundamental special operations type small unit tactics. Then we have to teach them conventional, more more conventional movements um, just to get them up to speed because you got to know those things. If you're out working with 140 Iraqi soldiers, you can't. That's that's not a small unit anymore. You know, you got to you got to think a little bit differently. So yeah. you guys have that that advantage, and that's an awesome an awesome thing. I mean, I remember the guys used to kind of complain about it when I was friends with a bunch of Force Recon guys. In the day, they would always complain about going to B billets. Like, hey, I got to go. Well, not a B billet, but they'd have to go back to an infantry platoon. And I would always think to myself, man, I'd go to an infantry platoon. Are you kidding me? Like, it's awesome. 
it's awesome and so I think that's a that's an advantage so if there's any young ones out there that are thinking about your future think about the Marine Corps think because you get that full spectrum of kind of land warfare you get the amphibious side too but you get the full spectrum of infantry and yeah and that's awesome and you don't yeah. you, you it's hard to get that in the seal teams you Get it over time, but I got I'll tell you where I got it from. I got it from working with Marines on ARG deployments and I got to see what a company movement looked like and that's where I learned it from, thank God. Because by the time I was older and in Iraq working with the Army and the Marine Corps, I kinda had at least some semblance of knowledge about it. Yeah. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And and one of the good things about that as well for us as an organization is um we don't have street to soft, right? There's a period of time and so, you know, like you get to assess people, and one of the best assessments you can make for future mm-hmm. performance is the past performance. And so if you've already got two to four years of observation in the Marine Corps, if you couldn't hack it in an infantry platoon, then you don't really yeah. deserve to try out or make it to the Special Operations Committee. But those lessons learned, you're absolutely right, it's it's exactly yeah. the same stuff. So if you, you know, like for all those young motivators out there that want to become a Marine or become <laughs> a MARSOC, like first, first step is just become a Marine. Be a good, great Marine at whatever you do. You'd be yeah. in the infantry, like, be great, like be the best rifleman you could be, be the best mortarman, machine gunner, whatever else Do they take any MOS? Yes. Okay, so that's awesome. So you don't have to worry about what your MOS is, you won't get withheld. No, it's it's becoming more and more competitive and and uh, if you're smart, obviously, you'd, I mean, I always tell people just to go in the infantry or reconnaissance units because mm-hmm. you know, if you wanna be a raider and you wanna go do those sorts of things, those skill sets are much more applicable uh, and it's better to learn them early and become a master of those as opposed to a master of admin or supply or anything else so what's MOS military operational specialty I think so occupational specialty military so it's like what your job is okay you can be a rifleman you can be a machine gunner you can be a mortarman but you can also be an a mechanic you can be an IT guy and you can be I mean there's Marines that are do every job you know every job that you can have the same thing in the army it's the same thing in the Navy you know, and so that's why it, it used to be in the Navy. You had to have certain ratings if you were going to go in the SEAL teams. Okay. And so I was wondering if they did the same thing. Like we only take guys from infantry. Gotcha. Um, last thing I'll ask you about, because I know we've been here for a while. You got two, you got two sons and how's that going? It's awesome. <laughs> How old are they? They're awesome. They're Almost sixteen months old, or sixteen, yeah, sixteen months old. Oh, so you're just in the full get some stage. Yeah, my wife is awesome, so they can do <laughs> a few things. So they can run, they can yell, and they can throw things. <laughs> so when I come home, I just know that like she's been just getting you know, <laughs> run around, getting thrown at, you know, like yelled at, cried, you know, diapers, like the whole thing. So and they're but, twins. Uh, yeah, they're, they're giants too. He's got a twin brother. Nice. Yeah, they're giants. They're huge. Isn't so. there like psychological things to watch out for with twins? Like what? I don't know. Aren't they like hyper competitive? Uh, yeah, let I me, think so. Let In me, a way, yeah. let me give you one piece of advice. I don't. Even, I don't. Not a twin. He's a twin. Mm-hmm. Get your kids training jujitsu when they're really young, because if you have a twin brother or even a brother that's close in age. You're going to be really good at jujitsu because yeah. you have a natural training, training partner you train yeah. with all the time. They're the same size as you, yeah. and there's some kids out there that are just sick, and it's because they have twins 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not brothers. just I'm not trying to take away from them, but it's a huge advantage if you've got a twin yeah. brother, they should be grappling oh, yeah. a oh, lot. Yeah. I fully intend on that. So I, that's one thing we didn't talk about, but I love jujitsu. So Jack. I uh, I got involved when I was a senior in high school. I just became like a in jujitsu. Yeah. Oh, so okay. Like, did you uh, wrestle? I did a little bit of wrestling, and then I played mostly football and lacrosse. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the guys, I was a lifeguard too, and so one of the guys that came to my pool, uh, he was a, like a correctional officer and got hooked up with uh, some guys up in Philadelphia and uh, started training. So it was like me, him, and a couple other guys training in like a, a church gym. And um, so trained there, and then when I went to the Naval Academy, one of the things that I did too was try to start a jiu-jitsu club, oh, a grappling dang. club there, because it was, it was just coming up, right? It was like yeah. 2002, 2003, 2004, and so trained, and then did a, did boxing, did a little MMA, and um, had a couple fights, and then like when I graduated, became a Marine and was married, it was like, put that on hold, because I, I don't have time, but yeah, absolutely. I'm That's married, I got be. four kids. I didn't put it on hold. I got after it. I don't you know, bro. You're boxing, fighting MMA fights. I don't know, yeah. bro. That's a no, lot. No, I always have guys go, well, you know, I, once I had kids, I got two kids, and then they come give me the look, the look for approval <laughs> yeah, from yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my answer is, I got four kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get some. Are you training anymore? <laughs> I'm not. No, no, I haven't. So I, 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 uh, I trained a little bit in the Marine Corps. You know, we did some combatives mm -hmm. and stuff, and I did all that, but... um. Just focused on trying to be a great infantry officer, and so did uh, that. And yeah, yeah. yeah. I got a friend, Max. Do you know Max? Max, Max yeah. is paralyzed. Um, mm. Chest down. I would chest say. Down, yeah. 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 He trains. It's awesome. Yeah, he trains. Has to come down and hook up with him sometime. Yeah, he's he's his grip has gotten a lot stronger. Yeah, I rolled with He's all tight. Yeah, yeah. You know his grip is super strong now, but um, that's awesome. But yeah, yeah. No jujitsu is uh is good, and with your twin boys, it's gonna be real good. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, man. Look, I, I we've been here, we've been at it for a while, and uh, man, just just awesome, awesome to hear you and, and talk to you. Uh, where where can people find you? So where should they look? Twitter. Um, yeah, I'm on on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, the usual, uh, Twitter, all that stuff. Derek uh, Derek Herrera. Well, that, that's DerekHerrera.com. And there's two R's in a row in Herrera, and there's a third. So there's Herrera. a total of three R's in there. Herrera. Herrera. Yeah. C. But only one in your first name, right? Yeah. yeah. Just one in the first name. H e r e r a. dot com, and so that's a website. Uh, I haven't updated the blog in a while. I've been focused on, on work and just doing that. And so SpinalSingularity.com has some of the other stuff we're doing, but um, Facebook, Instagram, all the stuff's public. I don't put anything out that's not you know, that's not private and uh, really easy to find me. So I try to answer all the emails and messages and whatever else if anybody sends me notes. So not hard to, to track me down. Awesome, man. Any, yeah. uh, and and MarineRaiderFoundation.org. And can people find out how to donate on there? Is that yep. that'll yeah, take? Yeah, if you go it? to that website at the top, there's a donate button that says donate now, and uh, that'll take you to a link. You can mail checks, you can sign up for credit card, PayPal, whatever, whatever you do. Um, there's also some contact information too. So if you can't can't give financially and you want to give time, there's volunteer you know opportunities for different events and things. But um, uh, yeah, that's a great way to get involved. Awesome. You got any um any closing thoughts? Yeah, uh, 
thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and, and share uh, my story with you. Um, I'm not here doing this to seek the limelight for anything. I'm doing it to try to be a good ambassador of the guys that are continuing to go forth and put their, their lives on the line on a daily basis um, who can't talk about what they do or advocate for themselves. Um, a lot of people to thank. My wife in particular has been there for me every step of the way. Um, the foundation, the Marine Raider Foundation, and all the people associated with, with the organization. Uh, my team who saved my life and wouldn't be here without them. And, uh, you know, all the guys that are out there continue to lay it down on a daily basis. Awesome, man. Well, like I said, it's it's been an honor to sit here and, and talk to you and hear your story and what you've been through and your sacrifice, even beyond what you did in the Marine Corps, what you're still doing, building your business and with the with the foundation and most important i think is just to set this incredible example to this day of what it means to never surrender of what it means to never quit and what it means to never give up regardless of the challenge that you're facing man that's awesome so i appreciate the example you set for me and for everyone and thanks for coming on and and sharing it a little bit Thank you. Pleasure's all mine. Awesome. And Derek has left the building. Obviously, awesome to have him on and hear about his story. So, Echo? Yes. If somebody wants to support this podcast, how can they do it? Many ways. We will. Well, actually... And I was—I meant to kind of—I didn't want to interrupt, but you know the what, the what do you call it? The something D, the decompression, needle Long. down decompression. Yeah. I guess I should ask him that. But is that like? Can you feel that? You know, like when you know when it goes in, they're sticking a damn needle into right, your through your rib cage but you know, and like, into your lungs. Yeah. Yeah. Remember? The, do you want to see if you can feel it? No. I'll stick a needle <laughs> through your chest oh, right good. now. Yeah, no, no, no. I, it, remember that movie Three Kings when they no. did that? Mark Wahlberg. Yes. No. They did that. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Anyway, all right. You don't want to talk didn't about see that, that movie. Yeah, yeah. All right. Cool. Anyway, yes. How can we support? How can we support ourselves? That's the question. First way is to. Stay on the path. Keep working out. Keep eating healthy. That's the hardest one. Mm-hmm. Me and Derek were talking on a side note. Like mm-hmm. eating healthy is kind of the hardest part about this whole staying on the path thing. Could, could, could be. Yeah. I think because it's like the, well, then again, the working out can, it depends on who you are. Either way, you want to stay on the path. One of those elements of the path, it's required now, is jujitsu. True. You agree, right? Yep. I thought you would. Anyway, when you do jujitsu, you're going to need a gi. Go to originmain.com. Get whatever gi you want. Doesn't matter the color. Well, no, no, no. Check with mm-hmm. your instructor. Check okay. with your instructor. I'm getting ahead of myself. And it. check with your personal moral compass. Yeah, wait. If yeah. you get a gi that's not white. Yeah. What? So what do you mean? Tradish. The tradish. Like, yeah. Pete, you know, Pete consciously tries to, like, usurp my personality but he always he won't give me a white gi he only gives me a blue gi a black gi right. or whatever gi he wants to try and break me out of this tradition yeah which yeah. he's successfully done because now i have all different colored gis yeah there you go but i wouldn't say that <sighs> violates your moral situation that's more of a style thing okay which violates my morals. yeah i guess so yeah a little so. bit huh either way yeah so yeah but check, but, check. but i guess i can i can claim 
a small victory because I can be like, oh, I don't care what color it is. Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Little little moral victory back in my direction. Yeah, because not like, not like you're sitting around being like, hey, maybe I should grab a green gear. No, because that'd make me like that. That'd be awesome. I'm just opening green. the package from Pete, going, oh, yeah, he's cool. got me a blue gear. Another gi. whatever. Still, I'll wear it. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Pete. Check. You're the man. Oh, so yeah, get a gi, man. Whatever color you want. After you check with the instructor and your moral com- compass, compass, yeah, like uh, I guess. Um, also, rash guards. Biggest selling gi color is, do you know? Uh, white. Nope. Black? Yes. Dang. Come on, we've yeah. had this conversation. We had that conversation with Pete. Everybody wants to be a ninja. Everybody wanted yeah. to be a ninja when they were little. Oh, I didn't know he was saying that's the, be- the most selling. Yep. I, I thought that that was like. Everybody wants oh, to be yeah. a ninja. Yeah. And the, makes black, sense. The, gi- the ninjas had a black geese, apparently. Yeah. Appar- I don't think ninjas know. had geese. <laughs> they had something They had the else. little special shoes with the toe. Yeah, the right? Tai Chi shoes. Oh, they were Tai Chi yeah. shoes. Yeah, check. Either way. Rash oh. guards. Rash you can also get rash no guards yeah. for nogi or for whatever kind of activity. You can get t-shirts there, and you can get supplements. Jocko supplements. Yeah, yeah, those supplements. Joint warfare for your joints. Krill oil for your all-around. Healthy, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Discipline. Yeah. Get you, get you in the zone, which JP sent me a text. And he's like, how are you still saying Dave Burke is the rep? Oh, he's for mad. discipline. He's yeah. more because JP's more discipline. Yeah, and he's on discipline go. Okay, yeah, that that kind of in the, a way opens the pill, up a, the go a, pill, the discipline go pill. And he's all he sent a picture of uh, some like super high speed thing. And he's like, "This is me on discipline go." <laughs> <laughs> so JP is what he called jockeying for he discipline wants, go. Representative position. Yeah, and he thinks Dave Burke, because Dave Burke is sort of the OG discipline player. Good deal, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He so, is. Well, it, let's face it, Dave Burke, he's per, he's going to be perfect regardless because he's such a, like, boom, high achiever yeah. dude from day one, you know. So, you know, JP's a loose cannon, so he can be the representative. Well, he can be a loose cannon. He's not a loose cannon. He can be the representative of discipline go because he's disciplined, but he, go, he, he goes. No, the funny, I think the funny thing, you don't mean loose cannon. What you mean to say J, about JP is JP's fired up. He's fired up, <laughs> And yes. what's funny is... JP doesn't need no discipline. <laughs> That's why he's not the best representative because I'm like JP. Yeah. What are you going to get more in the game? He's in the yeah. game. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you need yeah. to. So, so JP, we'll, we'll just give him uh, mutual supports, yeah. supporting assets behind the discipline. So, yeah, you can get discipline. You can also get milk, mint chocolate, peanut butter chocolate, vanilla gorilla, which is supposedly named after Leif Babin from what I understand (laughs) (laughs) and the darkness and uh, then the warrior kid milk strawberry and chocolate try those out even if you're an adult I hate to say it but I was thinking about this have you ever as an adult drank a strawberry quick yes yes you have I have Mm -hmm. big time (laughs) well now we don't have to do that anymore yeah because now you can get something that's literally completely healthy what was the one? There was like that wasn't quick that they tried to skew or angle as healthy, right? That was oh, some, I don't, they couldn't was do like that. Some other one, some other N- chocolate. I never one. heard of that. Yeah, I forget it had vitamin. Nonetheless, they tried. yeah, the working monk. That's oh, gonna be that's oh, the oval team. Oval team. They, the, yes, yes, they yes, might yes. try and skew. Yeah, that's but the one. But come on, go look at the ingredients and then compare that to to monk. Yeah, you know what that stuff has in it? A bunch of sugar. You know what monk has in it? Monk. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Direct from milk cows. Way, way different, man. I dig it. So, yeah, get all that stuff from originmain.com. Yeah. Also, if you want to represent Jocko as a store, everybody, Christmas mm. is coming up. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to activate. A, it's funny because I'm saying it like this is new thing. This is like such an old thing. A gift card. A, a gift, gift card, card on jockostore.com. So it's like, you know, how like, okay, your brother or whoever, uh-huh. your cousin is like in the game. I don't have a right? brother. Well, you know, whatever, your cousin, whoever. And they're in the game. They want, you know, and you say, hey, you know what? I can't pick out what I want for you from here. You just pick out what you want. Boom. There you go. Gift card. Boom. Nonetheless. You know what? I'm leaving this completely in your hands. You know why? I don't give gifts. I don't like gifts. Yeah. Gift cards just aren't a thing for me. I've yeah. never given anyone a gift card ever. Yeah. And so that's going to be your deal over there on your side of the track. That's exactly what I was thinking when I was making it. So <laughs> I was like, Fucking, this goes against kind of Jocko's thing. So you know what I'm going to do on the gift card uh, virtual representation. I'm going to put your face right in the middle of it. Boom. So that's <laughs> what I did. So there you go. In uh, honest, so it's kind of like, yeah, it's a gift card, but it's kind of from Jocko. Since you don't give gifts, boom. Uh, now nah, you do. Okay. There you go. Anyway, on there, there's some good shirts. You want to represent discipline equals freedom. You know, any kind of, how should I say, philosophy, mm-hmm. the path. Some good stuff on there. Some rash guards as well. And hoodies. Tank tops. I know it's winter. I dig it. But if you're in Honolulu, Pearl Harbor, Wherever you can still represent the tank top this time of year, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, a lot of good stuff on there. Jocko store. Def core stuff <laughs> to the core. Flag also, flag. also subscribe to, the, to subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already on Stitcher, iTunes, Google play and Spotify. Mm. I don't listen to Spotify. I barely yeah. know what it is, but I hear good things, and you know, I, I we're on there, and you know what? Doesn't Spotify we, play like mixed tapes? Kind of is that the theory behind it? I, I don't know, man. Yeah, I don't know either. Maybe but people. you can get the podcast there as well. Yes, we're sir, saying. you can. Yeah, subscribe. you know, you can ask Alexa for the podcast. Yeah, Alexa. Okay, and don't be confused with that. I think we went over this before. Cause some people think that it's an Alexa. It's not Alexa. That's like saying. I have, it's not an iPhone, it's a Siri. No, Siri is the the, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. the the girl inside. Alexa is the girl inside the device called Amazon Echo. Check. Layer. Anyway, yeah, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and leave a review if you're in the mood. Don't forget about the Warrior Kid podcast, which I just posted a new one last week and got a lot of really cool uh, feedback on that one. And yeah. I think once people got that one, because I don't talk about it, I don't post very much about it. But anyways, oh, a bunch of people, a bunch of people downloaded yeah. like all of them because yeah. they're they're cool and they're good. Um, I believe the word is conversation starters with your children. Yeah. That's what a lot of people said. Like, oh, I, I finally had the conversation that I needed to have with my kids about. Well, in that case, Warrior Kid Podcast Number Nineteen about making good decisions yeah and making bad decisions and how if you make some bad decisions along the way you could ruin everything yeah yeah totally and you what's interesting about that one too is i have the supreme luxury of being able to listen to all these while they happen right Mm -hmm. these podcasts but on top of that if i have a specific question for myself i can just ask you you know but like even though i might already kind of know the answer but when you deal with kids you can't just deliver certain information 
the same way you would as an adult or mm-hmm. like your friend. So I'm like, man, how do I approach this specific situation? And the way that and the way you do it in Warrior Kid is the same way like you, you kind of tell it to me or whatever. It's that alleviates so much mm-hmm. stress when like when you d- need to approach your kids with this kind of stuff. Well, one thing that I'll, everyone says is this is what I try and tell my kids. They don't listen to me, which exactly is 100% what I'm right. talking about. They, yeah. they listen to Uncle Jake. They don't listen to me. They listen to Uncle Jake. Yeah. Let Uncle Jake tell them what's what. Yeah. Uncle Jake speaks the truth and they and they accept it from Uncle Jake. Yeah. Oddly that enough. Yes, sir. Also, YouTube. If you like if you are interested in the video version of this podcast, you want to see what Jocko looks like. You want to see what Derek looks like. You want to see what I look like if that's your thing. If you haven't seen the two minute trailer for the Mikey and the Dragons book, you can get that on YouTube. Which, yeah. by the way, is epic, and I don't use that term lightly. Yeah, that's cool. Echo yeah. sent me the for approval text with sure. that video in it, and I watched it, and I wrote back, this is the best video I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah. All caps. Yeah, good. And then I went and read YouTube comments. So far, no one has said Echo is jacked because you're not in the video. Uh, yeah. Which is, which is supremely cool. Yeah, but sure. no. What's cool is people are are saying about a two minute video, a cartoon video about a kids book. People are saying that they got tears in their eyes, that they yeah. got chills. Yeah. It's a legit video. Yeah, it's awesome. So yeah, you can get that if you go to the YouTube channel, and then while you're doing that, you can um, subscribe to it too, to the YouTube yeah. channel. If you want, get the the big you know subscriptions. <laughs> Sure. And then you can get also you can get you can get psychological warfare mm-hmm. from iTunes, Google Play, MP3, whatever. And that's me telling you to do the right thing and making you do it. Yeah. So just give it Helping a shot. You through it. It's true. Also, when you want to vary up your workout, you want to add kettlebells to your workout. Get on it, kettlebells. Go to onit.com/jocko. Some good stuff on there. Workout stuff. A lot of good stuff on there. Good information too, by the way. So go on there. Onit.com/jocko. Jocko white tea Yes tastes delicious And is very good for you And it gives you an 8,000 pound deadlift. So give that one a try also got some books. We got um Mikey and the dragons. Okay update. I am printing them as fast as I can There's a bunch of printers that are printing new copies of Mikey and the dragons some of them have already been shipped They'll be going to Amazon we are going to be cutting it close right now. Actually, we should be good. People that are ordering, well, it's going to be cutting it close, depending on when you exactly order, whether it gets to you by Christmas or not. But the faster you order, the better chance you will have of getting it before Christmas. I apologize that I did not order enough books to be printed, and that is my fault, and I should have done better. And as Sarah Armstrong pointed out to me, mm-hmm. she's like, oh, yeah, well, you know why? You didn't order enough books because you thought, oh, well, Sarah will get a book and Andrew Paul will get a book and Iris will get a book. And then everyone posts what they got. Andrew got 20 copies. Sarah got 10 (laughs) copies. Iris got 10 copies. So everyone's buying multiple copies because it's the ultimate Christmas gift for anyone between the ages of zero and 10 or 12. Anyways, Mikey and the Dragons, order it as quick as you can and we will Try and get it to you by Christmas. If not, hey, uh, what's the next holiday after Christmas? New Easter, Year's. New Year's. Okay, maybe they'll get a new, new, new Year's, Year's gift. gift. Yeah, new yeah. Year's gift and or what's after that? Easter? 
Uh, well, technically, uh, the Easter Valen- Valentine's Day. Oh well, technically, okay. hey, you said holiday. Okay, you get Valentine's Day gift for your children, I guess. Do you do people sure? do that? Yeah. And if not, you know, just get it for them. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. That's a fun one. That you mentioned that video, mm-hmm. and the goal there was to kind of send, try to capture what it's like, like reading. You know how you, when you yeah. read a book, it goes on in your head. You yeah. Know? And so you capture what's going on in that book in your head. And how you're reading it to your kid, you kind of capture that in a little summary. That's what it was. I think it did because that's really how I felt when I read that book to my daughter. Yeah. It's good. Do you do voices when you read that book? Let yes. me hear the king voice. <laughs> no, Come on, man. Sorry, sorry. I'm not going to You do heard it. mine. To my yeah. son. Well, yeah, because it really is, but that's classified. So do you got to at least just give us a to my son? To my son. <laughs> That was awful. I know, bro. You put me on the spot. It sounds way better when I read it to her. I understand that. Wow. I also I feel like a voice actor over here compared to that one. (laughs) You kind of are. Anyway, hey, hey, moving on. Yeah, Mike and the Dragons, awesome book. Also, Way of the Warrior Kid, Mm -hmm. one and two, Mm -hmm. from Wimpy to Warrior Kid, Mm -hmm. and then Mark's Mission. That's number one, number two. Also important, critical books. I personally think, or it, the one that my daughter requests me to read again and again and again is part two, Mark, Mark's Mission. That's, that's I think she really likes Nathan, oh. Nathan James. She likes that idea of that irritating person, because you know? <laughs> that's how kids are. They always talk and, you know. Wait until names. she meets Danny Reinhardt. Yeah. Danny Reinhardt, book three. I'm in the process of writing right now, 10 chapters deep. Danny Reinhardt shows up so yeah she'll she'll like Danny Reinhardt even though my youngest daughter when I when she found out about the character Danny Reinhardt and who he was and now she goes Danny Reinhardt because <laughs> the character he's like good at everything yeah that's the the premise of warrior kid 3 the there's no bully right. per se there's actually a kid that's a good kid. He's good at jujitsu. He's good at pull-ups. He's good at running. He's good at everything, and he's nice. And that rubs Mark the wrong way because all of a sudden he's got someone that he's jealous of. It's hitting his ego. And what's that guy's name? His name is Danny Reinhardt. <laughs> <laughs> How awesome is that? Yeah. So when I told my daughter that, she was like Danny Reinhardt, and she says, "Oh, she says, what did Danny Reinhardt do today?" Yeah, but uh, well, you kind of can anticipate that your son or daughter that you're reading it to, or the person reading the, you know, if, if they're of reading age, mm-hmm. they're gonna like Danny Reinhardt. They are, but they're, I don't know, they're going to, they might, they might side with Mark a little bit because you can hear Mark's getting annoyed because Danny just, he'll, he does this, he taps, he'll tap someone out and say like, oh, you know, I must've got lucky. He's one of those kind of guys where like he beats him in a running race and he's like, oh yeah, you know, I was, I was feeling pretty good today, I guess. One of those guys, he won't take credit for anything, which is, and, and since it already bothers Mark that he lost, he's like, what did he say that? Right. Yeah. And plus we all been on the mission since, you know, since before Mark could even do pull-ups, we've Mm. been with him the whole time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so we're feeling his pain with him. So now this guy, Danny, he hasn't felt any pain. No. Nah, forget that. Danny's just naturally good at everything. screw that guy. Yeah. So that's Danny Reinhardt. And that's going to be coming out in the spring, hopefully if I finish it in time, but which I will. Uh, Discipline equals freedom field manual. You can get that book too. That's another book that you can get for the holiday seasons. Let's just say that. Agree. <laughs> if it it might kind of mess up, like jam up someone's New Year a little bit if they try and get on the path like 
for Christmas. Like what pre New Year's resolution yeah, scenario? Yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe they maybe they use that to kick off the New Year's resolution. They get a little deaf core. Yeah, but here's the thing though. It I think you might even say it in that book. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not. No, I'm, where you're like, I've said no, it. New Year's no New Year's resolution. No New Year's today. Now. Right now, yeah. Yeah, I've said that many times and I believe it to this moment. Yeah. So yeah, that's the Dismingles Freedom Field Manual. The the audio version of that is not an audible. It is on it's an MP3 thing, iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Play. Extreme Ownership. That's the first leadership I wrote book I wrote with my brother Leif Babin. We followed that up with the dichotomy of leadership, which is possibly better. Anyways, um, you should check it out. It will teach you how to pragmatically apply the policies put forth in extreme ownership into your world. We also have a leadership consultant company. We solve problems through leadership. That's what we do. It's me, Leif Babin, J.P. Donnell, Dave Burke, Flynn Cochran, Mike Sorelli, Mike Bima. And if you want to find out about that, go to echelonfront.com. We will come out and work with your company and get your leadership aligned. Also, we got the muster in 2019. There's going to be one in Chicago. There's going to be one in Denver. And if you want to come to the muster, they've all sold out. So if you want to come, try and register early, extremeownership.com. And we have EF Overwatch, which connects spec ops, vets, and aviation, combat aviation vets with companies that need leaders, tried and tested leaders. And any of you MARSOC raiders out there that have gotten out, hit it up at efoverwatch.com and we can get you connected to a job where you will be in a leadership position in the civilian sector. Again, that's efoverwatch.com. If you want to hang with us still after this on the interwebs, uh, first of all, Derek, like I said, he left, but Twitter, Derek Herrera, Instagram, uh, Derek underscore Herrera. Facebook, Derek Herrera. DerekHerrera.com. And also the Marine Raider Foundation. Again, he talked about all the things that the Marine Raider Foundation does. And if you want to go to that, the link is MarineRaiderFoundation.org. And then, of course, if you want to talk with uh, Echo and myself on Twitter, on Instagram, or on Facebook, E. Boha. Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks to all our military personnel out there holding the line. We can do what we do because you are doing what you do, and we will never forget that. And special thanks to the Marine Raiders for your legacy of bravery that will never be forgotten. And obviously, Derek Herrera for his service, his sacrifice, and like I said to him, the incredible example that he sets. Thanks to police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, correctional officers, border patrol, all first responders. Thank you for keeping us safe here at home and the rest of you that are out there listening. I know things don't always go the way we want them to go. But I think just listening to Derek today, I think there's no doubt 
that that is the attitude you take you don't focus on what is wrong you focus on what is right you don't focus on what you can't do you focus on what you can do you're thankful that you have these opportunities that so many didn't get then you take that attitude and then you go out there and get after it and until next time this is echo and jocko out